Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists, the last episode of our Spooky Season 2020 profile of John Carpenter. Uh, once again, Matt Pagel here with Adam Chemaluski. Chema, I don't know about you, I am really, really excited to cover this, uh, to, to hit this last episode and talk about In the Mouth of Madness with you. Oh, dude, me too, man. And I got to tell you... Um... I'm going to save as much as I can for the discussion, but I am in a very, very, very happy mood with this movie. Like I, I think I watched this same, movie like two and same. a half times. Um, I can't wait to get into it. I am a little like upset that this is, you know, kind of rounding out this um, John Carpenter profile season that we've done and everything. I thought it was a great idea. I, I had a lot of fun doing it and going back and watching his movies and stuff. So I don't know. It's going to be kind of weird when we resume, you know, talking about sports and other movies and the death of Quibi, whatever it is we talk about. <laughs> the death but, of uh... Quibi. The, the one that <laughs> everyone saw coming. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. God, I'm <laughs> telling you, man. Like, I don't know how it lasted this long. I know. I don't even know how the hell. But no idea how the hell that it, happened. Just, just real quick, just like real quickly. I, I will not take this on a tangent, but Quibi got nominated for more Emmy awards than uh, Better Call Saul. I know. Yes, That's I know. A they cry. did a killing on the Emmy Awards, dude. It's it's insane. And yeah, I, I don't want to do a tangent on it because I'm kind of formulating some kind of an idea of an episode with with this. And believe me, I could go on for a while. But yeah, dude, I'm I'm pretty happy about this. And like, I I just I don't know. There's something about this movie that I I, I got lifted. I got like an uplifting experience from this movie, like in a way that I hadn't had off a '90s horror movie in a while. And mm-hmm. I can't wait to hear all your thoughts about it. There was a lot of surprises, a lot of things I didn't expect. I can't wait. Yeah, same here. Um, like I said, I, I remember I remember watching this. I think I think I watched this in like either '97, maybe even '98. Uh, whenever it would have been. Whatever it would have first been on, like, HBO or Showtime or whatever. I would guess this is probably a Showtime buy. Just kind of feels like it would be. Um, yeah. <laughs> just, uh, you know exactly what I mean. I, I can't really describe that. It's just it some movies feel like Showtime ever said. What's up? That might be the smartest thing you've ever said. What's up? That might be the smartest thing you've ever said. <laughs> there you like, go. <laughs> honest to God. Uh, that is so true. Like, there are just some movies that end up on Showtime. It's hard to explain. But like this is definitely a Showtime movie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, we'll have to check that. I'm sure. I'm sure we can find that in the in the IMDb information. But uh, anyway, like um, you know, whenever it first got on television, I remember watching it and remember enjoying it then, and was just so very pleased going through it again that like how, that like that same enjoyment was still there. Like there's yeah. certainly things we can pick at that we'll talk about. Um, that, uh, you know, that maybe I just didn't remember that clearly, you know, I would have been like 15 at the time or whatever, you know, maybe 14, uh, 14, 15 year old me was a fucking moron. So of course I liked most anything that was like scary or gruesome or whatever. Um, but there's certainly things I can pick at, but like, I was very pleasantly surprised, uh, with this movie once, I mean, literally we're about like 10, 15 minutes in and I was just like, this is great. I'm having a good time. I can't, I can't, I can't wait to see what happens at the end again. Yeah, dude. Yeah. And like, I, I'm not going to lie. I am so far removed from this. And I was so surprised, like when I saw this and everything like that, which is just basically like the first question that I was going to ask you, just kind of like your initial overall thoughts and everything. I'm like, let me kind of lead off with this one, dude. Cause I got to tell you, man, I was so surprised and I'm so far removed from this. Like, you're right. It, this has got to be a showtime thing. I, I, for some reason, I'm thinking my dad rented this on VHS at, at one point in time, mm-hmm. but I am like, so this was basically like watching a whole fresh start for me. Like even some of the imagery, like um, 
you know, like uh, all the crosses and everything like mm. that kind of was buried back in the mind, the back of my mind. But um, after seeing everything like in its completion, dude, like I absolutely this was so surprising in a very, very good way. Um, I was pleasantly surprised with this in ways that I don't think I've been from a movie in quite some time. And that's even including that uh, Netflix movie with Tom uh, Holland and everything that I told you about. Mm-hmm. I was actually surprised off that one, but this one, um, my God, man, I, I did love it. Um, I'm going to be saying a lot of positive things about it. Um, I do have some critiques, which we'll, you know, we'll get into when the time comes, but I am, um, I, I, dude, I'm loving it right now. Yeah. This is such a good idea to do um, this particular movie. I, I am I'm echoing all those thoughts um, and I'll, I'll add to it that like what really kind of what I what I really kind of enjoyed was Carpenter. I mean, obviously it's a horror movie, but Carpenter leaning more into the mystery element as mm-hmm. opposed to the horror element that, yeah. that helped create a very interesting atmosphere. And I think you had the I, well, and we'll get to this when we get down to some of the other stuff. I think you just had the right mix of actors um, for something that trends more towards mystery and less towards horror. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to switching around if it was a horror movie that had some mystery elements. Um, I think he had, like, the right cast. Uh, the the setting was pretty great. I mean, just everything about this movie came together in the, in the right way. It, it felt like... It felt like this was a really great episode of The Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits or Tales from the Crypt or something. Like, that's yeah. what it felt like. A really, really great example of one of those type of, types of... Uh, you know, 45, 50 minute uh, episodes of Twilight Zone. Oh, definitely, dude. You make a really good point about the mystery element there, which I I know we're going to dabble into a whole lot as we continue on with this episode and everything. And man, you're right. This is definitely like a lot of mystery to it. There's a lot of really cool kind of things that are set up, things that are answered, revealed, nice little twists. Like, yeah, man, I'm I'm pretty happy about it. And um, before I get into the next question, which is sorry for going a little out of order there, I did. I did want to um, I didn't really have a lightning round question. So I'm kind of glad that that thing kind of flowed into each other into itself naturally so but before we do i did want to um you know we're going to be doing in the mouth of madness this is a movie that came out initially in italy in december of 1994 and then it came out in the u.s of february 1995 starring sam neill julie carmen and uh you're going to help me out with this one jürgen prochnow is that how you pronounce that jürgen prochnow prochnow now as none other than Sutter Kane and the uh, IMDB they offered uh, three quick synopsises for the in the mouth of madness and I'll be reading one to you that comes from Claudio Caravallo in Rio de, Rio de Janeiro Brazil and just like we did with the Christine one I'll start this off now and says uh, the efficient and skeptical freelance insurance investigator John Trent is hired by publisher Jackson Harglow to find where the famous writer Sutter, Sutter Kane might be after writing a series of bestsellers in the horror genre affecting the reason and causing disorientation and memory loss and paranoia in readers, Sutter has simply vanished near the release of his new novel, The Horror in Hobbs End. There's a mass hysteria of his anxious fans waiting for the new release, and John believes that his disappearance is a marketing strategy. John follows his instincts and travels with Kane's editor, Linda Stiles, to New Hampshire, seeking for the apparently fictional town of Hobbs End. While driving, Linda reaches Hobbs End. John discloses that Sutter Kane has unleashed a powerful evil force in a black church in a mysterious town. And the twisted imagination, changing reality, and the perception of those who read his novel. So thank you very much, Claudio. So that's 
a pretty damn good synopsis there if I've ever seen one. So uh, everybody out there, yeah, I hope you're excited because believe me, I'm very excited to uh, to get into this movie. So with um, just kind of going into uh, kind of furthering into the outline and everything that I sent you yesterday, the updated one. So I just want to ask, is there anything that stands out to you within the mouth of madness compared to Carpenter's other horror movies? Um, well, obviously we just, just this, the idea of like more of this mystery element, um, being like the, being like the driving force of everything versus the horror element. That's like one obvious thing that stands out. Um, <clears throat> but I think like another huge thing was, I, I don't recall him doing any other, uh, meta films or meta cinema that, okay, this, this is the only one where we are early on invited, invited into the idea that we're watching over we know that we're watching a work of fiction like that's not hidden that's basically the definition of a, of meta cinema or a meta movie or or a meta film um there's no mistaking that like we're kind of at least presented with the idea that we're watching a work of fiction and we know it um and even even then there's some sort of there's some layering that carpenter does in in very much like a um very much like in something like the thing um, presenting, giving mm-hmm. us all, giving us all the evidence for this, but still sowing in some seeds of doubt too. Yeah, I got you, dude. I definitely understand what you're saying. The the meta film, I dude, totally threw me for a limb. I did not expect that coming at all. I thought that was a really, really, really creative way to end the movie. It kind of added this like humorous kind of ending to this really crazy, you know, um, apocalyptic, you know, disease killing everybody kind of movie, and just seeing Sam Neill in the theater, like popping the popcorn or whatever, laughing his ass off to mm-hmm. his own self on the screen. That just, that just did it for me. Cause it wasn't like one of these things where, um, you know, Sam Neill's in there and he's watching scenes he participated in, but instead it's like Jeff Goldblum or something like that playing his character. It was actually himself watching what he just went through, which is great. I think, I actually think that would have been pretty funny if it was just not even like a famous actor, just an actor that looked like him. Mm-hmm. And like the scenes were not exactly as we saw them, but as like he remembers them, if that makes yeah. sense. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your memory, like you and I could see the same thing and remember and remember two different things that actually happened. Um, exactly. I do think that would. I mean, we'll get into that a little bit more, but I do think that would have been pretty funny because this ending is like both bleak but like funny. And right, it would have been pretty funny if it was a different actor and things played out just slightly differently in the movie that he's watching. Oh, dude, I could see, like, somebody wearing, like, a fake wig that's supposed to look like Sam Neill's hair and everything, and he's dressed, like... A terrible New Zealand accent. Yeah, like, a slightly, like, bigger suit that doesn't fit him all Mm -hmm. that well, because it looks like a budget movie or something like that. Yeah, I I could definitely see that, for sure. And what stood out for me with, um, In the Mouth of Madness, compared to some of Carpenter's other works, is, dude, he covers a wide variety of, like horror subgenres, horror elements, whatever you want to call Mm it. I mean, there's psychological horror. We get the, we definitely get some blood and gore that we didn't get in Christine, which is really cool. We get Mm -hmm. supernatural elements, there's creatures. And then even this one thing, which I was particularly surprised about was in the beginning part of the movie, we finally get like urban horror, like horror that takes place in the big city. And I know they live takes place in LA, but I I still consider they live to be more of like an invasion film. And I don't believe that Carpenter ever went to the big city or brought the terror to the big city. um, Not in a horror, not in a horror. Yeah. Not in a horror aspect. Obviously 
you know, Escape from L.A., Escape from New York, but not in a horror, not not within the horror genre, no. Yeah, no, that's what I thought, too. Like, I was pretty confident that, you know, I knew that, like, Big Trouble take place in, like, uh, San Francisco and stuff like that. But this not is, a horror like, movie, yeah. Yeah, not a horror movie. And, like, urban horror, um, I don't know, we just don't get that much of it. Like, there, it seems like horror is more... Like, I guess, like, reserved for the suburbs and stuff like that in general, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just but uh, I thought that was cool that we finally went to uh, the big city and stuff. So if um, just really quick, I kind of want to know your opinion on this. Like, if you were to like out of all the subgenres of horror, and this is just one of the questions I didn't have on the outline, I thought of it really quick, like, Mm -hmm. you know, like stuff like slasher, zombie, found footage, like, what do you put? in the mouth of madness like what subgenre is it well this this is um in in i mean it's mystery horror um obviously first and foremost but it's also it's also just dipping its toe into cosmic horror okay gotcha okay so like cosmic horror being stuff from other dimensions things like that yeah the, the it's and i'm gonna get to this I'll, i i have a i have a more full definition for you um, what do you think of stuff that's like anything that's sort of like beyond beyond the realms of man would be okay. cosmic horror? I totally understand that. Okay, I don't think I've ever heard that terminology before, but that completely makes sense. That it, it almost like defines itself. I don't know why the hell I asked you, <laughs> but so okay with the um, okay. So let's move right along and let's go into with the protagonist here. So uh, Sam Neill, John Trent. Mm-hmm. While this is not. At least in my opinion, Sam Neill's most iconic performance. But do you believe it's one of his best or better performances? I I, I really do. Um, I really think this is one of his better performances. And you know, you do have to like like I've I've never seen his stuff from Australia, New Zealand, you know, prior to the '90s. So like I can't mm-hmm. 100% comment on how good he was in in that kind of, in you know more more of his more of his domestic box office, if you will. Um, right. But like obviously, when you you know the first thing you think about it, he's Dr. Alan Grant. Like that's of course immediately where your mind goes, but I mean I really liked him in this, and he plays a very similar um, a very similar character in another Carpenter movie, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Um, he's he's got this he's got this interesting presence about him that's like authoritative, but not like not in like but authoritative in a way that like well like Doctor Alan Grant like a professor like a doctor would be someone mm-hmm. who's educated who knows a lot of stuff that kind of like authoritative presence. And that's like what we need. First off, that's what we need for this character of John Trent anyway. I mean, his whole, his whole profession in life is, um, is busting people, you know, finding out information about people to bust them for insurance fraud. Right. So he's got it. He has to be authoritative. He has to be very self-assured. He has to be very smart. And Sam Neill just kind of his characters and almost everything that he does sort of radiate that. Um, obviously Jurassic Park, um, like I said, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, he played a very similar character. Um, even, I don't know if you ever caught the show Alcatraz, um, that he was in briefly. He had, like, I... same same type of character, although he was more of a villain in that in that show. But, like, it's really about, it's really about, like, him giving you this presence that, like, you, this is, this is the guy who is, he's logical, he's, his, you know, he doesn't make mistakes, and like he just he's very good at he's very good at that period in all of his roles and he does that really well here. Yes. Dude, okay. Yeah. This whole thing for me right now, I am in the same boat as you. I have not seen any real of his earlier stuff like from Australia, New Zealand, anything like that. Like I have 
a very limited knowledge of the Sam Neill. And when I was answering this question, I was just kind of thought it'd be like bookended by the two Sam Neills that I know. And I saw like him in this uh, Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book, which mm-hmm. is, um, you know, the live action Jungle Book. He had a very um, kind of medium sized role in The Hunt for Red October. He was Connery's number yep. two, you know, like yep. on the sh- on the submarine and everything. And um, obviously Jurassic Park, which I will not say anything farther on. We've all seen Jurassic Park. And then I thought about what I've seen him in recently. And he was in um, Peaky Blinders. And he was also in this movie called Hunt for the Wilder People in 2016, which mm-hmm. Is actually pretty good. I, I think it's a Taika Waititi movie, if I'm not mistaken. I it's believe a, so, yes. Yeah, it's like the one right before uh, Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought it was really, really great. And uh, these two periods of Sam Neill's life and everything, this performance just really stands out to me. I mean, he casts such a wide range of characters like he does go from like you know the insurance guy this really smart intelligent guy who's able to figure out these scams like you know even right when he's talking even before he's even talked to the guy you know Mm -hmm. set the dude up and then like there is this kind of suave ladies man side that do that does make appearances like little sprinklings you know that kind of like at least humanize him a little bit and stuff like hey i'm kind of a cool the man and then this descent into madness is just so on point mm-hmm. and he, as i'm trying to think of when it might actually start it might start like probably like at the end of the first act when they're starting to like go to hobbs end and everything but from that point on it's just it's just a lot man i mean it's just like really commanding it's almost this kind of performance that you didn't get in horror movies back then like you rarely even get them in horror movies today. I mean, like if anything, with this horror renaissance has kind of, you know, prompted and pushed forward the um, the must-have of a really compelling protagonist. And this performance from him is compelling on like so many different levels. Like I, I just I can't even believe that this movie was released in '94, '95. So I never like. I, I've never seen Sam Neill like this. Um, his characters, even the even the guy in Blinders, who's this cop, who's like you know a little edgy and you know kind of rougher, uh, you know kind of rough and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still it's nowhere near. I mean, this is like one. Of, in my opinion, this could easily be the best performance he's ever done. Yeah, I, it's 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 a very it's a it's a great one. It really is. You would like him in Memoirs of an Invisible Man, um, okay. where, where he's playing. He, I mean, he's the villain, and he's 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 one of those characters. I, I think it's I think it's the voice. He's one of those characters that just instantly makes a good villain. Okay. Okay. Very nice. And believe me, you know that we're going to be having some John Carpenter, like, you know, kind of withdrawals and everything. So we might not end up having to do that as an episode for sure. just, for the for hell, sure. just for the hell of it. With um, with Julie Carmen, played by Linda Stiles, like, what is this character's job? In, uh, uh, flip, flip that around. Linda Stiles, played oh. by Julie Carmen. Linda Stiles, played by Julie Carmen. Sorry about that. <laughs> so, uh, so d- uh, did this character have a job to do? Uh, what is it? She did. Um, and she is in the... I really didn't think about this until like I, I started until I started answering this question. She is the mentor in the hero's journey. And a very bizarre version of the hero's journey is what the story is. <laughs> um, she's the mentor. Um, she mm-hmm. knows the ins and outs of Sutter Kane, obviously, and the ins and outs of Sutter Kane's world. And uh, she knows what happens next because she's one of the only people that's read in the mouth of Bannis. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, mentor is a great word. I, I called her the guiding light. Mm-hmm. Like the the guy, she like once again was kind of um, 
similar to Lee and Christine, only with a lot more personality. Right. And, uh, well, actually a lot more personality. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Had probably yeah. literally 50 times the lines. Yeah, dude. And, like, when she was on camera, the um, the contrast with her and Sam Neill, when she's kind of, like, you know, shooting him down and everything, there was this good kind of chemistry there. You, In a way, you were sort of rooting for them to maybe kind of get together, which is just, I, I thought, how well they played off of mm-hmm. one another. Mm-hmm. And you're right. She was the publisher. She knew all the ins and outs of Sutter Kane. But at the same time, like, she was just, like, you know, I guess, like, just so susceptible to him you know what i'm saying which uh yeah when the, the scene where um he kind of like cast the spell over her and stuff like that and you just kind of see this person as just this you know drone messenger from the voice you know this demonic godlike voice that sutter kane is and everything and yeah she was like a really cool kind of like a connection bridge to that whole world but a guiding light for sam neil and everything definitely a character that I, i'm not gonna lie like probably anybody you know could have played this part you know i'd say a majority of actresses in hollywood could have played the part but i i really i thought she was good i thought she nailed it way better than the than the lee character from christine all the way <laughs> yeah i think um i think the thing that makes the linda styles character work uh julie carmen's like um she's still acting today like she's still in the, she was still in stuff recently but she's like a professional actress you know you're not gonna she's not gonna be headlining like one show for 10 years she's gonna be in 10 shows in 10 years it's like <laughs> It, this was the kind of role that necessitated someone you didn't really know that well, you know, so you mm-hmm. wouldn't be destroyed. Like if this, uh, this is, so this is 95 to pick a, I don't know, huge actress around 1995. Um, Meryl. <laughs> yeah, she's right, been huge like, the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, she's been a, the biggest actress for 40 years, but yeah. Um, someone like that, like Nicole Kidman, if Nicole Kidman yeah. was in this role in 95, she would be distracting. Because you're like looking at like a, a big time up and coming star, right? You needed yes. someone who was a little bit who is you. You know what? If this was if this was remade now, I'd almost guarantee that Linda Styles would be played by like a theater actor, someone that you really don't that the the a wide a wide a wide swath of people would have never seen mm-hmm. before. No, I do. I completely understand what you're saying, and I'm actually. I have another one of those kind of things with a character, like somebody that's almost too big to be in the movie that mm. we're going to get into later on that I'm, hopefully you'll agree with me on. Gotcha. So, <laughs> okay, so let's move into the um, antagonist now. And I do have a couple in this category. So let's start off with Sutter Kane, Jurgen Prochnow. Overall performance, what are your thoughts? I mean, Prochnow's great, um, period. This, this dude's been nominated for awards. Uh, he's most well, probably to our generation, he's most famous for being a beer fest. But um, <laughs> but like, if if you're a little bit older, you're into you're into foreign cinema. He's very famous for uh, 1980 80 or 81, I think 81's Das Boot, uh, World War II movie, uh, in which I think he was nominated for an Academy Award. Might have even won it for that. Um, uh, so like, this guy's he's a great actor. He's an actor. Even like thinking about beer fest, like he's one of those actors that doesn't mail in performances, even if it's like mm-hmm. ludicrous. And he does a great job of nailing down, of nailing down what I think Sutter Kane's supposed to be, and you know it's it part of it is just that Jurgen Prochnow just looks like a villain. I mean, he just he looks like a bad guy. Um, the hair, yeah. the 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 voice, the accent. I mean, it just screams. I guess most Germans sound like villains, but um, <laughs> but like everything just screams villain. And even in his limited screen time, he makes the most he 
his presence in his limited screen time makes the most of everything. So I, I think he's a really solid villain in this. Yeah, I made a I made a specific note about his limited presence because he even in his limited presence, he's also a character we seem to hear more about yeah. than we actually have a relationship with in this movie. Mm-hmm. But he kills it. And the hair, I'm not gonna lie. When I originally just saw him that in that awesome introduction scene with the doors and That's the church great. and the kids. So great. So I saw the hair and I was a little bit like, okay, I forgot this was the nineties. And then when we see him again and we actually get to hear him talk and we see him behind the typewriter in the room and stuff, that's what really sold me on it. Mm-hmm. Like there was, I don't know, there was, it, it didn't do it right away on as much as I loved the doors. And I thought that was sweet. When I saw the hair choice, I was a little bit skeptical at first, but then later on it was completely redeeming. Like once he was able to talk and everything, and we actually kind of got to see his mannerisms and the way he was. And even that like really crazy looking like a demon type thing on the back of his neck, which we'll get to when we get to effects. Like I was, I was completely hooked from that point in time on. And how do you feel that he ranks amongst other and Carp John Carpenter antagonists? You know, it's, this is a really interesting question because I mean, I think it's totally unfair to rank him against all of the inhuman antagonists. Like, you mm-hmm. you can't rank him against The Thing. That's, right. like, an incredible, like, it's no, an incredible yeah. antagonist. It's an incredible, it's incredible special effects work. That's really difficult. Um, you know, so, like, take out the inhuman ones. And, like, you know, you can go to um, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, where there's literally, you know, gods and monsters and things existing in little uh, in uh, Chinatown in San Francisco. So you kind of got to throw that out too. Um, a little bit. Um, I, I would still, James Hong is still really, really great as the villain in that, but he's also, again, he's like, he's immortal or whatever. Um, so I think when you, when you're ranking them against like his human antagonists, he's clearly behind Michael Myers. And mm-hmm. I would even put like the Duke of New York, Isaac Hayes um, from escape from New York mm-hmm. just ahead of him. But like Sutter Kane is right there. Like I, I think you're talking about like his third, his third in line, like in 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 the in the ultimate ranking of John Carpenter's human villains. Yeah, like he doesn't have that iconoclasm of Michael Myers, and there's something about Escape from New York that I love so much, and Isaac Hayes and everything that just puts him on that pedestal yeah. for me personally. But for basically, like I said, like this just being a fresh movie that I watched two and a half times in the last two weeks. I'm putting him in number three, hands down, mm-hmm. easily. And, like, this character, like, there is definitely a complexity to him that I thought we could have explored a little bit more, and I'll touch mm-hmm. on that later. But the thing that the complexity brings to the screen is this beautiful, beautiful, articulate character. And he's one of these kind of, like, like almost like these kind of like menacing like emperor type characters like these deified human Mm -hmm. beings and i have seen this on screen play out awfully so many times like whenever the character like the lightning bolt strikes him and he becomes powerful or whenever like the uh the scrawny guy falls in the 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 mutagen and comes out like a big strong dude you know like the big power moment from Mm -hmm. from your antagonist like they all just seem to like fall short of this. And like, I can't tell if it was so much, if it was just like a less is more, or if he really used like the right words in the right way with these really cool cadences and kind of just sweet hand gestures and really like subtle kind of mannerisms. 
But that's what really did it for me. Like this was kind of the first John Carpenter character that was the real like intellectual villain, in my opinion. Like everything else was more like Michael Myers, like the raging force, you know, mm-hmm. or like you had the uh, the creatures in the thing and stuff like that, which I said, which you said is not even comparable to this. But this articulate character in this, I, I mean, I basically I bought into it. Like I bought into the whole idea of this guy being this evil, you know godlike demonic author that is controlling the world like and if you can sell me on that that's a pretty good sale in my opinion yeah he um it it just he has the haughtiness of a writer but like knowing because he knows he knows that he's in full control of everything that's happening it's it's this sort of it's this sort of um he's on a power trip but he doesn't have to tell you that he's on a power trip he knows right. that he's in control of everything. He knows that he can do whatever he wants. I, I do think it was interesting, even again, even though we get limited screen time with him, does it not feel like like Sutter Kane just sort of it, it sort of floats through scene to scene that he is in? That like he he moves differently from Julie Carmen and and uh, Sam Neill. Oh yes. So like even taking my two favorite scenes of him, which are when Sam Neill is in the confession booth, going into the uh, the bus and everything like that, he just he transitions so well out of it. Like there's something about him where he doesn't even have like a distinctive wonky walk at all to him. You know, mm. like at, like when you see Sam Neill, like this is like so stupid that I'm going this where with this, but when you see Sam Neill kind of walk around in this movie, like Sam Neill's like, he's got the arm swinging and he's got this kind of confidence to him and stuff like that. Or even in the end when he's about to like, you know, take the guy out with the ax, he's just mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, there's movement there. Sutter Kane doesn't do that. Sutter Kane does kind of float. He does kind of like stand over every single person or every single element of the scene. And that's, a, that's actually a really, really interesting way to put it because number one, I didn't notice that until you, until you brought it up right here and now. And that's what just got my mind going and everything. But number two, that is just a really cool way to like subtly and visually separate a character from everybody else. Even though, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like you look, Sutter Kane is definitely more identifiable than right. all the other characters, but that's just like one of those nice little sprinklings of genius that you might only find in like a John Carpenter horror movie. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, Sutter Kane creates the town of Hobbs end and okay. So like, do you consider Hobbs end an antagonist? Just kind of give me a couple like sentences as to why. Um, I, not an antagonist, but definitely some variety of character. Um, okay. there's, you know, you have like the, the town itself does have a really interesting feel to it. Um, I think when we, when we talked about Christine, how there wasn't, you know, there's great visuals in it, but there wasn't like a feel to it necessarily. Yeah. There is yeah. a feel to this movie that gets provided by this small New England town. Um, you, you do feel like you're sort of, and obviously there's some, you know, the, the car ride that, that becomes, uh, that becomes very, uh, magical and supernatural. Mm-hmm. Um, but like once we arrive in Hobbs end, we do feel sort of like that we are someplace that's just not quite right. That like something right. is, something is just off here. And so like it, it, everything does have that sort of feel to it of it being something more than a town, which is great. Um, and obviously you have that very, very notable church. That's like an incredible, that is really an incredible piece of art. That is an incredible piece of architecture and has without being like too evil looking, 
You know, like it could have had like it could have been like a solid black church with like you know like big ominous like church bells glaring at all. You know what I mean? Like they could have right. gone real over the top with it, but like just the touches on it were enough. You know, like just some of the black stone that was outlining like the church bells, the 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 gold you know kind of stood out. It's even though it was it stood out from the rest of the town in a really great way. And like that was like your you know your your focal point your center point for um, the town being a character. Okay, so I'm glad you bring up this church thing because the church to me, it's one of those. You you, you said it the right way, okay. And like for me, would the same kind of impression that I get from the church is like you know like how in um in the TV Stephen King's It movie, you look across the swamp and there's that kind of building that's over there. Mm -hmm. And whenever they shoot it, like the camera, there's like, it's a little more light. So it kind of like almost looks dreamy to a certain degree. That's what the church reminded me of. It was almost like this, this pleasant or docile image, but there's just so much anger and hatred and evil that's behind it. It's this really interesting, like visual juxtaposition. And the fact that they had it in kind of like this field and everything with like the blue skies and all that stuff behind it, when we saw it, it just, it really accented what I think that they were trying to create with the atmosphere of Hobbs end, which is something that does have this innocent and maybe docile appearance to it. But in all reality, like it's almost like every element of the town is some kind of monster in some way, shape or form, or in this sense, a, some idea or some kind of evil personified coming from the mind of Sutter Kane and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, like I, I do put this, the town into the antagonist category. Okay. Um, it just like, and I just have for a couple of very basic reasons. And that is the, the fact that the town like presented obstacles to the characters that they like yeah. you know, had struggles overcoming like mm-hmm. and these are just very very basic like they could not leave you know that was one True. thing yep. that so um i think you're hitting all of the correct things with the, the atmospheric stuff and it being a character and of uh, kind of like in the sense of the way that maybe dairy main is or even to a slightly lower tier like the um which is not saying lower tier by any way shape or form but the um the town from true detective season one where you just kind of know you're there and mm-hmm. like that's a place where you know certain things happen mm-hmm. um i was a little bit quick to throw them into the antagonist category because there's just so many different antagonistic forces that are at play at, at this movie and or with this movie and everything oh so. yeah i mean it's it's an evil town like it's yeah. inherently evil the word hobbs is literally like an old arcane word for devil um so like the, the town is literally named devil's end um like so it is an, it is an evil town i mean like mm-hmm. there's no doubt about that so for sure i think you could put it like i have no issues with you putting it in the antagonist kind of role but i i almost see it as like it, it is just a manifestation of it's the physical manifestation of of Sutter Kane's mind. So okay. it is kind of inherently evil, but it's also just doing what it does anyway. No, dude, I, I totally got you. And, and I have a quick question. So Calvin and Hobbes is like that what it's supposed to be like Hobbes the tiger is like the devil side of Calvin always getting Calvin into trouble. Is I, I that mean, where that comes from? I don't specifically know, like, because Hobbes is also just a last name. Okay. okay. So I mean, yeah, okay. maybe, maybe that's <laughs> yeah. what they were going for, but like, Literally, like, if you were to, if you're, like, the word hob is, like, a, a, a sort of, it's an old word for, like, a type of devil, so. Okay, gotcha. I did, for some reason, that just came right to my mind, because I did not know that. I definitely had no idea about that, so that's cool. Um, okay, so who um, do you think is the creepiest townsperson in Hobbs End? 
I mean, the kids are really creepy. Um, I, I mean, just like it, it, the kids are really creepy because like it just there's always something about like the the creepy the, like the little mob of kids that are turning evil that just it kind of it does get me a little bit. Um, but realistically speaking, I, I don't know if she's the creepiest, but I think she's just the best. It's Mrs. Pickman. Um, the, the, the late great Francis Bay, um, I love when she pops into movies the same year she, or a year later, she'd be in happy Gilmore as his, as his grandmother. Um, I love when she just pops up into things and like, it was just kind of fun to see this kooky old lady who's usually like in comedies as this, as her, you know, her, her eventual turn into one of, uh, Kane's like bloodthirsty, uh, old ones. Right. Yeah, so she she was number two on my list. And okay. dude, okay, her the scene where they pan down and she's got her husband like handcuffed to her ankles. Yeah, did not expect that coming mm-hmm. at all. And there's like there are certain scenes in horror movies where like once again, going back to Stephen King's at the TV movie, when Ben is having his um his kind of flashback and he's a kid and he just escaped Henry Bowers and he looks out over the over the swamp and his father's standing there. And then like in the next shot, his father's got the three puffy buttons for the clown suit. That's kind of what that reminded me of, where it was just this like re- really fucking just creepy as shit image that I don't know. In many ways, it could just be like, hey, these old people are just trying to have a fun night. Maybe they're having some like, you know, kind of dominatrix BSDM kind of stuff. And they she heard the bell ring. And but um, yeah, like that scene and out of itself was great. And then when she turned into the creature with the axe and stuff like that, like that was I, I love that. It's just, you know, kind of like a John Carpenter being like the man with creatures and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It was cool that this old lady ended up becoming this giant monster with the, the tentacles and all mm-hmm. that stuff for sure. And my number one, um, I do happen to love this actor, uh, Wilhelm von Homburg, as most people would know him as the painting of Prince Vigo in Ghostbusters 2. Uh, he was in a couple of scenes and in the mouth of madness, he was one of the townspeople that showed up to the church. Um, when we, when we first get to the town and, um, Trent and, uh, styles go to the church. Uh, and then he's also in the two scenes in the bar. And one of the scenes, he, uh, totally blows his brains out. And I knew that that was coming. Like, I just, I saw it coming and it was one of those things that like still kind of got me, even though I saw it coming just because I do love that whole, like, um, think sam neill's like accusing everybody of being actors and stuff and he's just like dude you gotta get the hell out of here you know like just leave like this isn't the place for you or whatever and um so him definitely being my like number one Mm -hmm. creepy but i will say and i'm going to acknowledge the kids if you're going to do creepy kids that's how you do it these little small things like maybe just like a red line on their face and which eventually builds up to them with the eyes and the teeth that we saw when um styles goes to the church and everything Mm -hmm. like on her own but you see the kids um and it's just like enough to let you know that something's off about these kids but you don't really find out until like you you, through the exposition later on right yeah yeah, the the kids and everything. That's kind of like the way you do um, creepy kids and everything, which is probably why Carpenter followed up in the Mouth of Madness with Children of the Damned. Damned. Yeah, <laughs> which, which uh, if if I'm remembering that correctly, it's not that great. Yeah, I don't. I remember that movie kind of coming and going, and I I don't. I'm still not totally sold on like just creepy kids and everything sometimes it could be really really great sometimes it just could be like you know what you're looking it's, at with child's play it's real so. hokey sometimes yeah yeah really hokey sometimes mm-hmm. definitely 
So that's why we are going to get into right now something that I'm very excited to talk about, which is the actual epidemic element of um, of this movie. So is this type of epidemic, parentheses, people going crazy and killing each other? That's really the only way I knew how to put it. Um, is this on brand for John Carpenter? Well, it's on brand for H.P. Lovecraft. Um, and this is a Lovecraft homage. So, okay. yeah, it's on brand for Lovecraft. Okay, okay so this idea of the, this comes from Lovecraft then? Yes. Okay, okay. I did not know that. Like, I honestly, like, I know that there's a lot of homages to Lovecraft in this, and I read this article that, like, you know, basically talks about this being a love letter to Lovecraft from John Carpenter oh, this, and everything. this whole movie is actually... Um, a lot of people consider this um, not just an homage, that this is actually like a, P, a part of the um, Cthulhu mythos. So like oh, this, really? this is like official for a lot of people. This is like official canon in, in Lovecraft's uh, series of a series of stories that involve uh, Cthulhu. Okay, no shit. I did like I am very in the dark on Lovecraft. Like any knowledge that I do have of it comes from the discussions we've had and the show on HBO. So like there's a lot of things here that are like it's almost like social blinders to me. Like it just kind of completely just gone over my head at times, and I um. I put this question on here because without knowing that this is a Lovecraft, um, a Lovecraft inspired epidemic to me, this seems completely on brand for John Carpenter. Like even if this wasn't like Lovecraft, this is the way that he mm. would end up doing the, the apocalypse. And it got me to thinking. And once again, I did not know about the Lovecraft um, connection, but can you name any, any other movies that have this kind of, portrayal of the apocalypse like i i can't think of anything maybe mad max is the closest thing but i can't think of anything you know um specifically like this no um but like there's you know you know it, it's funny that you, you said that like you think that this was something that carpenter would do anyway and i think you're right and just to go back to the the first movie of of the apocalypse trilogy the apocalypse trilogy the thing um, what really ends up undoing everyone at U.S. Outpost 31 isn't, I mean, it's the alien, it's the thing, ends up, un, you know, kind of being their undoing, but really what, what's their undoing is their distrust and insanity, is right. what drives them to fucking everything up, uh, making themselves vulnerable, um, and there's a, there's a really interesting video, actually, uh, on YouTube from, I think it's from, like, What Culture, um, that pinpoints all of the infections, if you will, the, you know, whenever the assimilations, I should say. And mm -hmm. this, that movie is way more clever than you realize in how it picked when to infect people and how to show who was infected. There's obviously like the, um, you know, the blood scene is like one of the obvious ones, but there's a lot of other subtle stuff. If you're paying attention, you can catch exactly the moments when everyone gets assimilated. Um, okay. Except for, except for McCready and, um, uh, Keith David's character, who's escaping me right now, but the last two, you yeah. know, yeah, Keith David you. and yes. Kurt Russell. So it, it is it is on brand for like that that was gonna that was the undoing for everyone in our in our in uh, excuse me that was the undoing for everyone in Antarctica was insanity and distrust and I, I guess like I mean yeah I guess like Mad Max is like like the closest you're gonna get to that kind of thing where people are just fucking going crazy post-nuclear apocalypse um mm -hmm. or, you know post you know post-nuclear war i guess so i i don't know specific I, I can't think of one specifically where insanity was the driving force 
other than in like Lovecraft type stories. Okay. Yeah. Like I had to ask you that because I was drawing a complete blank on that. Like, so this whole thing to me seemed incredibly fresh. Like, I mean, that's how that's like, this seemed like a, such an original idea and stuff until, uh, until that was all put to hell by the little Lovecraft thing, which I should have expected that I really should have. But um, yeah, man, I couldn't think of anything um, like that had come prior to in films. Um, you're right. Just like Mad Max, the nuclear war, the gas shortage and that footage that they show of that's supposedly like society turning on each other. That, mm. That's all I got. And um, so I got to ask you this now. And this is just did like Bird Box and The Happening, did they like borrow from this and just completely fuck it up? Because that's also something I kind of got the vibe from with Bird, Bird Box and Happening is that they Those, kind I, I would, of sort of got this. Yeah, I, I would guess that they probably weren't specifically borrowing from this. They were borrowing from like Lovecraft ideas. Um, I mean, Lovecraft, I mean, his his writings, like most of the bulk of his writings now are like 100 years old. Um, mm-hmm. So like they're a lot of different people have borrowed from him um, and, and borrowed various ideas. So like, yeah, I just, the, you know, it, the happening, it almost feels like, I, I don't know if we, I don't know. I don't remember if we mentioned it when we, when we reviewed the happening, it almost feels like it was supposed to be a comedy and just for some reason didn't turn <laughs> out that way. Um, mm-hmm. And I still refuse to see bird box cause it just sounds so fucking stupid. So, it's awful. Yeah, it just sounds so fucking stupid. Um, so, like, it, it does sound like they're borrowing this sort of... It, it does sound like they're borrowing a, a, an idea from this and taking it to, like, very weird extremes. I mean, like, <laughs> the happening is a very weird, stupid extreme. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the idea behind Bird Box, the reason why I won't see it is because the idea sounds stupid and extreme. Yeah, no, you... Stupid and extreme are like the three words that could easily be on the description of IMDb of both The Happening and Bird Box. And like these were the only two movies that I was able to make the connection to this. I mean, I'd have to assume that after this movie had come out and I mean, now knowing the Lovecraft connection, this idea has would have had to have been done some in some other like apocalypse style movie. Um, which I don't know, like, is this, would this even be then like zombie adjacent as far as like That's, the subgenres the go? First, the first thing I could think of is the, like one of the first thing that does jump to mind. That's like pretty close. It's not necessarily like the walking dead in terms of the zombies themselves, but like now that we're like, I think we're like narratively like almost a decade into the zombie apocalypse, like the way people have gone insane in that time frame is like probably mm-hmm. the closest you're going to get to that. Okay, okay, I understand. Like yeah, there's something about like just the whole thing with like the mindless humans and the um almost like that strictly primal interaction of just going out and killing somebody mm-hmm. that did kind of strike me as very very zombie-esque. But you don't have the um you don't have like the, the the usual kind of elements that come with zombies, like you know the rotting skin, or even just that person dying physically in mm-hmm. general to be brought back to life. I mean, I guess you could say that uh, you know these people die on the inside and then are reborn as manic Suttercane fans, crazy people killing each other. But it just doesn't have that like direct link, which I think would be the one thing that kind of prevents it from being even like zombie adjacent or whatever I just used to call it. Yeah. But um, yeah. So like, no, I mean, there's, there's just like so much going on in this movie is like so layered with all the different elements of horror and stuff that uh, 
that it, it just, once again, I'm going to say surprising probably like 30 more times this episode. I mean, it just surprised me in ways that I, I did not expect to be surprised. So all the, um, you know, John Carpenter's big time social commentary guy. I mean, this is the last question in this, um, in this section. Like, is there any social commentary that he's trying to communicate with in the mouth of madness? I think you could, I would say pretty flatly. No, um, you could maybe stretch some arguments here that maybe it's a commentary on, you could maybe a commentary on the business side of entertainment. Um, how it doesn't really, you know, Jackson Harglow is, not concerned with whether or not Sutter Kane is alive. He's concerned with getting that fucking book so they can put, mm-hmm. so they can go to, you know, they can go to publishing, they can print it. Um, and then they can get started on the movie, right? Like that's like his primary concern. The really, the only reason why they're sending, why they're sending John Trent out there is for publicity and to, and to get this goddamn copy of the book. Right. That's true. Yes, you're definitely right. This isn't a uh, humanity mission. This right. is, it's like aliens. This whole thing is, you know, for money and for money. stuff like that. So, for sure. Yeah. So you could maybe stretch that commentary there, but this is where I'm going to get a little bit more into the into the cosmic horror stuff. This is this is a story that it lines up really, really well with Lovecraft's idea of cosmic horror that we are and in, a, in a different way. Obviously, it's a meta movie. I'm pretty sure Lovecraft did not write any meta books or meta short stories or anything. Um, but we are, you know, you, I, I don't think just the way that Lovecraft stories kind of set up, it's really hard to, it's really hard to sew in a lot of social commentary. And we, okay. I, we probably will talk about Lovecraft country cause that's a whole different thing on its own. Um, and it's, and it's for an interesting reason. Um, but like, it's hard to sew in, a lot of social meaning into a lot of the Lovecraft stories because they are just about like insanity and nightmares. They are about things reaching in from across, you know, from across different dimensions. Um, and like really like simply the, not like the big thing with cosmic horror, obviously it's the stuff beyond like the realm of men. Another big feature of, of it is like just knowing about it, knowing that this stuff exists drives you insane. Um, so I, I just, I don't think there's really much of a social commentary here. Other than, other than, you know, the one that maybe you could reach for with the business side of entertainment. But I think this really is John Carpenter just going, I enjoy H.P. Lovecraft stories. I'm going to make my version of it. Okay. See, like, dude, I'm in the same boat as you on this one. There's nothing really that I could pull from this that doesn't sound like completely on the nose as shit. And it's like so on the nose where I almost don't, there's no way in hell that that's what they were going for, you know? So like my mind immediately went to like, okay, is he making some kind of like commentary on religion and like false prophets and stuff? And like, Hey, if you follow false prophets, like, um, you know, that's supposed to be like your end. It'll drive you crazy. That's just, that's so cheap. And like, that's, I almost feel that that's like definitely, that's so bad that that's no way in hell. That's what he's going for. You know what I'm saying? So, (laughs) um, like I yeah, seeing in the research that I've done about these homages to Lovecraft and everything, which I still I don't know how the hell I missed the apocalypse one. Um, that's what I'm kind of getting here. Like I'm just kind of getting more of like a inspiration driven film instead of making a focus on cloaking societal fears in this movie. And dude, I can't mm-hmm. even tell you what the hell our societal fears were in the nineties. I don't even know if we had any during uh, Bill no, Clinton's uh, Billy, Billy Clinton was riding high, man. <laughs> Billy Clinton was riding high. The stock market was exploding. Tech stocks were, were <laughs> shooting through the roof. We were happy, man. 
Yeah, I know. There's like, and it's amazing. Like, there's nothing to be afraid of when you're happy, which is hands down the only way you're ever going to fix society in general is if everybody sees prosperity. But that's a whole other thing for a whole other time. And yeah, I, like, I couldn't think of any societal fears. Like, there wasn't like, while I do feel like, and I said that the the epidemic is like the the high like the highbrow kind of element that we would see in most carpenter movies and i've explained the highbrow thing a bunch of times since we've been doing this but um there's nothing that i'm looking at and saying like yep that is definitely a metaphor for this or nope we were afraid of that back then so in all reality it's just a it's not really much as far as like a deep metaphor and stuff it's just kind of like a straightforward mystery suspense cosmic horror movie yeah no there's and that's fine like uh, you know there doesn't have to be social commentary in everything like, right. You know, like I, I, I thoroughly enjoy watching, like I thoroughly enjoy watching a horror or an action movie that isn't trying to say too much. We're just going to shoot a lot of people, you know, cut a lot of people in half or whatever. And we're going to get from, you know, point A to point B. We're going to, there's going to be some heroes that they're going to try for the villains. And like, that's fine. Like I'm totally fine with that kind of story. We don't need to be bogged down in too much metaphor. Yeah, man, there are just some times where, like, you put that so right. Like, I just want to see some stuff blow up. I want to see uh, Captain America, like, throw a shield at somebody. And, and believe me, I'm all about the metaphor. Like, I love these oh, for thick sure. as hell, you know, like a soup kind of movies and TV viewing experiences. But, I mean, like, and I guess maybe, like, some serious, like, film people out there might hate on me for saying this. But, yeah, dude, I just want to watch a Marvel movie sometimes. So, fucking sue me, all right? Yeah, no, I, I know. Like, <laughs> the, the people that, like... The people that get too, that like get, the people that are like film snobs about like that kind of stuff, about like everything has to be, like one of the best, one of my favorite movies ever made, one of the best action movies ever made, Die Hard, is not about anything else other than terrorists in a building. And John McClane has to get, has to get them out to save his wife. That's what it's about. Yeah. There's, and you want to tell me that that isn't brilliant? awesome filmmaking go fuck yourself it's one of the best it happens to be an action movie but it's one of the best movies ever made yeah dude no and you put that you're 100 percent right on that and there's a bunch of movies going on down the line you know that are exactly like that and i think people forget sometimes that yeah it's supposed to be art but there's also this like entertainment side of the whole thing you know i mean mm-hmm. there are times where like i want to be moved and there are times where i just want to see a bunch of people you know blow up inside of a building and see uh John throw Hans over the office building right across the street from my building. And, uh, yeah, dude, that's kind of all I want sometimes. It doesn't have to be this big metaphorical statement for sure. Right. Do you ever just like look up at the building and you're like, man, I'd love to see, I'd love to see Hans Gruber just fall right now. Man, there are times where I just like want to like go up there and throw just somebody off there just for the hell of it. You know? I can throw like, I'll, I'll throw a taco bell wrapper off that thing. That doesn't matter to me. None. Like, but you gotta, you gotta <laughs> let the, you gotta let the tacos slip out slowly <laughs> right <laughs> yeah that's right uh, i i will tell you something about that property dude just really quick on this when so it's on avenue of the stars in century city california which is right across the street from my office building which is basically like um it looks like i hate to say this but it does sort of look like the world trade center with these two big twin towers that mm-hmm. are right across the street and the property of Fox's office building. I mean, it's nothing to get excited about. I mean, like what you see in the movie, that's basically it. I mean, there's no magical fountain. They don't have statues of actors. None of that stuff. It's just basically an office building. It looks like crown center and independence, but in century city, California. And when you walk up to that building, like I've walked like right by it and stuff. Like I have never actually walked up to it and touched the building, 
because I'm telling you, man, there's something about it where I'm just afraid that the minute that I step foot on that property, there's going to be like a intruder alert, intruder alert, like get this fucking guy out of here. He doesn't work here and stuff. <laughs> and, and the, like, yeah, like the, the property for just like, I'm telling you, you could walk across the lawn and go touch the building. No problem. But there is just something about it that says like, just don't fucking come here unless you work at Fox. Right. Right. I gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so just like we did in the Christine review, um, I kind of borrowed your positives and negatives section for mm-hmm. this review of in, in the Mouth of Madness. So just going to go into it right away. Positives with the direction and production and music, lay them on me. Um, <clears throat> so like I, I like I touched on a little bit before that this this movie had a very unique feel to it, um, unique look and feel to it. Like they did a nice job of. Uh, they did a nice job of just like the physical setting of the town uh, in New England. Although I think I'm going to go ahead and guess 100% sure this is probably somewhere outside of Toronto. Um, it is. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but nonetheless, it does have like this feel of like kind of a sleepy New England town, a la, a la you know, Lovecraft, a la Stephen King. Um, it has that kind of feel to it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I, I like how I like how right off the bat everything feels kind of empty when we're in the town. Um, and like when we do see people, like the people are clearly not well, uh, and things aren't right. So like, you know, it's, it's just like an immediate sort of reveal that things are just, or something's going sideways there. Um, I, I love like, I love a lot of the stuff, like I wish there was more of this, but I love like the, um, when we get that painting at the, at the Pikmin motel, um, that mm-hmm. is changing various, you know, the, the, the people in the painting are looking the wrong direction or looking one way or the other. Um, they, they change as the film goes on. I love little touches like that. I, I, again, I, I love the way that the church was this, was this, what's what you kind of mentioned, like supposed to be this sort of serene, um, you know, the serene object of peace has a very sinister feel to it. Um, I, I thought that was really excellent. So like, first and foremost, like I just, I really enjoy that there is like a full atmosphere to this film. <coughs> Excuse me. There is a full atmosphere to this film um, that really kind of like sucks you into it. Yeah, dude. Atmosphere-wise, you could not buy a better atmosphere. And like, I I'm gonna just kind of echo some of the stuff that you said really quick. I don't have too much to add on to that. And I like, this is like by far and away one of the best like Stephen King movies I've ever seen. And this is not even a Stephen King movie. <laughs> like, right. and I know that taking it back to taking it back to Lovecraft and everything like that, but it just had this really great feel to it. And like, I've always kind of been a sucker for like, you know, the crazy haunted town or stuff that goes wrong in the town. And I drew a lot of like parallels between this and like basically for the nostalgia shot, the Stephen King's it TV movie, like they did kind of run on that same plane. The, mm-hmm. the it remake as great as they are. Like they, they kind of did a different thing with dairy and I totally appreciate that. But as far as like direct comparisons go, the TV movie, I think it's just got a better one. And like, you really, I don't know, man, you just, you really get sucked into it. Like you get sucked into it in every way, shape or form, man, from the institution to the streets of New York, to the restaurant, to John's office, to going into Hobbs End and then back out again, dude. Like this was just one very, very, very fun ride. The production quality of it was, was, was goddamn amazing. It looked really good even for like the 19, for 1990 standards anyway. Mm -hmm. And there's just all kinds of really sweet, just shots of the church. You had those crazy cuts of violence that happened throughout the movie, like especially in the first five minutes alone where, um, you know, John Trent's just in the room and then you had that little quick little montage and stuff. You had those, which were really great. Um, I, I just a cut above, like, and I was very, very happy with um, some of the direction and production and 
you know, I'll save the music stuff for later. But uh, gotcha. so go. Well, I, I, right I, along. Hold on, hold on. We got one more oh, here. Sorry, sorry, uh, sorry about that. There is. I will also give them a lot of credit for investing a lot into like creating the Sutter Kane mythos. That like, you're right. Like we talk about him so much, and we get so much detail and information about him and his books before we get you know before we meet him. And and obviously that's a little bit of a writing thing, but. What I mean is like the the omnipresence of of this writer, um, you know, on street art and posters, um, you know, uh, you know, you walk by a bookstore, all of his books mm-hmm. are are up, you know, up uh, like proudly displayed, and like the book covers are very detailed. Um, I yeah. don't know if, if you saw any of the pictures of them. The book cover, book covers are very detailed. Um, there's like so much information about Sutter Kane that it feels almost almost like they're talking about a real person. Yeah, dude, it really does. Like for a second there, I almost had to check to see if this guy just happened to be like a real guy, you know, some writer from the 90s they borrowed or whatever. Like, you know, just kind of almost like making a play on the reality, like having this real writer be a guy who just happens to be in this meta movie kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And uh, yeah, dude, they put a whole lot of effort into that guy's mythos, man. And with the book covers in particular, like they even all look like Stephen King book covers from back then and oh, stuff yes. with like the way that the, the, the name kind of being um, separate from the title and stuff like that. And the detail that goes into them is like absolutely phenomenal. And there's this shot of Sam Neill at the bookstore. And it's like in the first act of the movie where you kind of get to see like everything like spread out in front of you. And then again, after his little like dream sequence, when they're all there on the table, like that's just like some insane level of detail that they put into the actual books themselves. Mm-hmm. And like to give the, this character, this mythos, like you get such a mythos on this character in it's got what's again, 90 minutes or so, like an hour and 29 minutes. And it's almost parallel with the mythos that Michael Myers has in an entire film franchise. So, right. I mean, they did a great job with that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, dude, I really, I really, really like that. So I'm going to move right along again. And I'm sorry to jump ahead uh, on you like that oh, before, but I'll try to try to slow it down a little bit. Um, acting and writing the, the positives here. What do you got? Um, I, I really love that they use a, a lot of um, Lovecraft's actual dialogue from his books is actually peppered throughout this mm-hmm. movie. Um, yes. just like a nice, just a nice touch. Um, as far as like Sam Neill and Julie Carmen go, um, like you said before, they have like a very, they have a, they have a good chemistry that isn't too, you, you're kind of, you know, there's like that suggestion that they're kind of into each other, but it's not like overwhelming. Um, <clears throat> so like you do kind of care about like what happens to either one of them, um, which, which I really enjoyed. Um, I, I like that. I like that Jurgen Prock now plays Kane not as a complete madman as i would i would say that i mean he is like a little bit crazy obviously this is someone who's who's who thinks his writing uh is warping reality or you know he's writing reality however you want to put that um so i mean he's like a little bit insane but i i think i think of him as someone who is more enlightened um he Mm -hmm. he knows what the coming horror is because he's in control of it more or less, um, or at the very least, you know, he's an agent of it. So like he knows, he is, he, you know, if 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 the genre, the subgenre of cosmic horror is about going insane because of your knowledge simply of the things that exist beyond, you know, beyond our notion of existence, uh, beyond our reality, he's one of the people that is not driven insane by it. He is intrigued by it, and mm-hmm. because his, you know, because of that. He is just sort of, be, you know, take that in, in combination with 
um, you know, with his intelligence, the way he speaks, the way he kind of floats through scenes, he is very much almost not a part of the story that's happening in a good way. It's just like he is, you know, he's he's the director of this film, if you will. Like he's there, he's present, but he's only seen when he needs to be seen. Yeah, dude, that's a really good point. And when you say that, like, it kind of draws this um, comparison to Ozymandias in, like, um, in maybe in the Watchmen movie, but definitely more so in the comics and mm-hmm. stuff. Like, th- there is this, like, um, you know, because they know the knowledge and because they have this power and control, there's, like, this certain confidence about them that really, like, makes the characters all themselves. And, like, in many ways, like, in the, the comic book of Watchmen, like Osmond Dice is just there when you need him to be there. Like he doesn't really get too much of a backstory in comparison to the other characters. He's definitely not as much of a focal point as he is with some of the other characters. And it just kind of works. And then this like role of Sutter Kane being this mastermind, all powerful, all controller type figure, like it just once again like elevates this whole movie and this whole thing to just this cut this big mm-hmm. this whole thing that i did not expect like and it's just a really genius way to have this antagonistic presence on screen but to have it be different than the michael myers of the world or even like even like the dudes like uh, the antagonist in wall street where it's michael douglas's character and stuff that is a very articulate character too but he's all over the goddamn mm-hmm. place you see more of him than you do charlie sheen mm-hmm. so there is something about this that really really knows how to make the most out of out of out of like less or out of minimal screen time and Mm -hmm. that's very very impressive dude for sure absolutely yeah dude like i really really like that i'm going to kind of continue on here with the writing because like i've said enough about like my thoughts on the performances i love all that stuff i'm going to give some of the writing uh some of my critiques on positives on the writing here and um okay so for starters, I do love the structure of this movie. And I did find this article from offscreen.com where they say that this structure is supposed to like kind of mirror invasion of the body statures from 1956. Where oh, for sure. It starts, sure. it starts off someplace. And, and I even to throw it on top of it, throw another thing on there. Like it's very, very like noir esque to a certain degree, like the detective story and made it almost Hitchcock like to a certain degree, especially with like seeing dudes in suits and this kind of horror mystery kind mm-hmm. of movie. It just made me feel very, very reminiscent of, um, of Hitchcock stuff, which I really, really, really liked. And I thought that by telling the story through this kind of flashback really added a lot of weight to the apocalypse that was happening in the beginning of the movie. You know, like we, we wouldn't even be able to tell the apocalypse was happening because you, you see the, the, the ambulance pull up to the hospital. It's a bright, sunny day. Everything looks great. But yes, there is this apocalypse that's happening outside, which I think just the flashbacks just really, really help um, help kind of reinforce mm-hmm. that and everything. So I was a big fan of doing the um, the structure the way they did. And give me one second. I'm going to scroll down to the rest of my list because you hit on the Lovecraft stuff. And I believe the um, when he rips a hole in the in the dimension or whatever, and that, yeah. that voiceover dialogue, that's like straight out of Lovecraft. That, is, that was like one yeah. um, easy easy example that imdb had uh, pointed me to so let me see here uh one really cool thing that i did like and this is pretty much like a textbook sc- uh, screenwriting is they did a lot of really cool introductions of stuff and then you get an answer on it about like 
five to ten minutes later, and it's a really cool twist. Like when you find out that um, the guy who attacked Sam Neill in the restaurant was actually Kane, was actually Kane's agent. I thought that that was really mm-hmm. cool and kind of put a little bow on number one that guy, but also then reinforced like yeah that this is happening. This could happen even the, the dude's agent, the guy who's probably read all of his work and stuff. So I thought that that was really really cool. I loved the idea of him cutting up the book covers and they form the state of the I, I, <laughs> I don't know why. I thought that was really, really, really cool. I'm just something stupid, but I just, it added so much to it. Like I love when people put puzzles together on screen. Um, one good thing about this scene compared to Christine was the scares just kept on coming, man. You got them like one mm-hmm. after the other, after the other, after the other. And I will say that there are definitely some jump scares in there, which you know, they happen, but it wasn't an all jump scare movie. No. And you definitely didn't go close to 40 minutes without a scare like you did in Christine, which mm-hmm. I thought that was just helped with the pacing. It kind of reminded you that, yes, this is a horror movie. And even trying to maximize um, those jump scares at all costs, like when he uh, Trent has his little dream and he sees the cop beating up the guy and the yeah. cop has the monster face and that, hey, oh, God, it was only a dream. Nope, he's sitting right now next to me so they really like maximize the jump scares whenever they um they needed to and a couple more things um the dialogue okay the dialogue is really really good here for the 90s i actually still think that this dialogue holds up there is no calling of people shitters or anything like that over (laughs) and over again i mean the dialogue felt very very natural there were times where like Maybe with some of the relationship stuff, it, it kind of got like a little hokey or off brand. But you, mm-hmm. you need to do that. You need to have some type of like love story element. Just give somebody like the root for, you know, and all this crazy horror stuff. Let somebody get laid when it's all said and done. Mm-hmm. So I thought that the dialogue was was actually pretty good. Now, the, the reason I was so surprised is because I found out that this movie was written by this guy named Michael DeLuca, who at the time was the head of New Line Cinema, who actually, like, you know, they were the people that put out the movie. And it Mm. was great to see that little New Line film reel type introduction that they do. I I loved that as a kid, like New Line Cinema stuff. That's just, that's like nostalgia for me right there. But this guy, Michael DeLuca, he wrote Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, which came out in 1991. And I got to tell you, dude, (laughs) Freddy's Dead is not... Anywhere near as good as written as uh, In the Mouth of Madness was. So the fact that this guy went from Freddy's Dead and Tom Arnold and Roseanne making a cameo in a Freddy movie to this very, very intelligently written and highbrow attempt at horror, I thought that was really, really great. And this guy, DeLuca, was also a writer on um, Freddy's Nightmares, that 80s TV show, and they tried to take a Nightmare on Elm Street and turn it into a TV show. Yeah, he yeah. was a writer on some of those, too. I, I, could bar- I could barely remember like what those episodes were about, but there's some imagery from those um, episodes that still kind of enters into my mind from, from time to time. And it also has um, what I think is probably the best line in an entire John Carpenter movie, and it's when Kane and... Um, Trent are inside the confession booth and uh, Kane says to him, he says, the problem with religion in general is never known how to convey the anatomy of horror. Absolutely brilliant line. You do not get lines like that in a lot of John Carpenter Mm -hmm. movies, and you really don't get lines that good in a lot of other horror movies in general. And sometimes you don't get lines that good and even stuff that's supposed to be good lines. So I thought the dialogue was really, really on point there. Um, Sam Neill, like just his range and everything like that he brought that I talked about earlier, that really helped with it. Um, Like I said, it's just not the same dialogue as Christine. We were talking like two completely different styles of writing. 
And um, the last thing that I was going to mention was the um, I loved the, the idea of the meta, the meta story. And one of the articles that I read said that because of DeLuca's connection to New Line and because of Freddy's Dead, that In the Mouth of Madness is a lightweight companion piece to Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Because Wes Craven's New Nightmare, like at least from what I can remember, was one of the first movies that I ever saw that really aimed for the whole like infusing of the movies with reality. And I know that like the screen kind of does it like, you know, a little bit later on in 96, but this is, but that was the one, it's the, it's the one where Heather Loggenkamp plays Heather Loggenkamp, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Wes Craven plays himself. There are, I think characters that are, you know, like fictional or whatever in it. But um, yeah, the fact that the fact that this, like, this idea of like the meta movie and, you know, even kind of the, the bending of fiction into reality and stuff like that, which really isn't done in the mouth of madness, but it's done. So in new nightmare, I thought that that was really cool too. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. So, I yeah. Just, yeah, no, that's I, my long list of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll just, I'll add to it real quickly here. I love that the, I love that we didn't, that we get the, we get the buildup of all these characters talking about Kane and it, it's what it's, it's past 30 minutes before we finally see him. Correct. Yep, you bet, dude. You're looking at like 32 to 34 minutes. In Something like that, yeah. So, like, I, I love that we, we talk about him, we, we read his books, we get, like, we, we get all of this information about him before we meet him, and when we do meet him, it's, I mean, that scene is, that, that, that introduction is so awesome. It's, it's a quick introduction, and it's just like, it, it's like, that's, that's where writing and production and direction meet, and, like, mm-hmm. form this, like, per, like, nice little, like, perfect harmony. Um, where all yeah. the all the dialogue, all the talking about him, and then you get this quick, really interesting reveal with the door swinging open to this evil church, and it's just like, that's the person that we're talking about. That fits. Yeah, no, you're definitely right, man. That totally fits. And I, I might have been wrong. I think it might even be later. I think we could, could be, be looking at forty minutes or so into the movie before we get the introduction. Like, I'm going over my notes, and like a lot of shit happens in the first half an hour or so of the yeah. movie. So. Yeah, man, we go all that time without actually seeing a visual of the antagonist. That's really impressive world building there. I mean, or even character building mm-hmm. without actually seeing the character and stuff. And it's cool that this movie was able to do that so well. You know, usually with movies, you may hear like a name a couple of times. You might see like a, a picture of the guy in a billboard. So it's just like, hey, by the way, so-and-so is in this movie, just so you guys know to right. not leave. And uh, and with this, like, yeah, man, they really milked it for all that it's worth. And that buildup, I think the payoff of it was was phenomenal. Really phenomenal payoff. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely, dude. Definitely. So this is one of our favorite things to talk about next. Some of the effects work and stuff in the movie. What are the uh, positives you took away from the effects work? You know, there's <clears throat> there's there's a couple things here um, that okay. So I even though it looks very dated, um, you know, 1995 era uh, CGI and, and and visual effects, I like the idea of Sutter Kane tearing himself apart like a book page and tearing himself out of our reality. And then thus mm-hmm. opening the hole to the portal for all of the all of the the old ones to emerge. Um, that like I don't I don't know that I've seen something similar to that since this movie. Like nothing nothing sticks out exactly. And I I, I really like that idea. It's very unique. I think it's I could be wrong, but it, I think if the trivia said like they wanted to do something else. Like this was the compromise. Yes, you're right. Yep. And even though again yep. it looks dated, it's it's a dated computer effect. The idea behind it is fucking fantastic. I really, really love that. Um, 
and then you know just continuing continuing on with that um the the whole wall of the of the creatures the great old ones emerging from the from the portal and approaching trent mm-hmm. is a very fun practical effect that i wish we could have gotten a little bit more of um but but it's that's fucking awesome um and and again like a very simple thing that would be fucked up by cgi now um when when linda styles is like being fully corrupted by um by Sutter Kane and her body's contorting and everything. It's just a contortionist in a, in a dressed up like, like Linda Stiles wearing a Julie Carmen mask. Um, mm-hmm. That's all it is. And it looks good. You know now that if they did that, it'd be a CGI fucking slop fest and a little terrible. Yeah. Yep. That was my favorite uh, practical effect of the movie was the contortionism, and the body kind of moving like a spider mm-hmm. and stuff. And you're right, man, if that was today, that um, the body would, number one, it would be super amped up, you know, it'd be really fast moving yep. and three seconds would go by and the body's in like 10 different places and stuff. But the minute that she stuck her head out from the, from the car and you just kind of see the head emerging from the side of the car door, that shot, I knew something crazy was about to happen. I did not expect it to be that. And that's why I loved that particular practical effect yep. so much. Dude. Yep. And I keep forgetting that, that there are people that could do that. Like the, like that's like a real thing, you know, these contortion and stunt doubles and stuff. I mean, I'm the least flexible person you'll ever meet in my, in your life. And the fact that somebody could do that is just beyond impressive to me, man. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'd watch them do it, but I, I don't know if I'd actually watch them go from standing to that position but uh, i'm very very impressed with it no less that's sure. awesome it's so yeah, awesome yeah yeah and you hit like you definitely hit on some other things um that uh that i had kind of hit on you know like that that was the one thing there with the um, the idea of the uh, the contortionist i I'm agreeing with you with the effects thing on that portal thing, dude, the, the effects don't necessarily age so well, but I couldn't think of anything like that either, where you just kind of poke a hole in something like maybe those transitions and home improvement would be like the closest thing. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know, but, uh, but, um, but I, I did like, I could appreciate that they did that. And I believe the, um, what they were going to have to do, what they wanted to do was, um, something like the entire thing gets like sucked down a funnel or something like that. The entire room or something gets like sucked out of there, like a, like a funnel cloud or something almost. And it was too expensive. And that's what they, um, that's what they decided to uh, Mm -hmm. compromise on there. And those monsters in the tunnel, that those are, those are models, right? That's, is there, is that CGI monster? No, it's so that, so the monsters in the tunnel are all animatronics and they're actually like one big, piece of equipment that's being pushed on like rails okay and somebody got hurt in the filming process you know they ran over one of the one of the creators and effects directors from uh, the walking dead greg Greg nicotero oh no shit yeah (laughs) dude believe me i would love to get run over by a a prop in a john carpenter movie that guy's that guy's lucky (laughs) but uh yeah like um i i so i that's what i thought too like i some of the um the CGI stuff and everything was definitely in that big hole punching, but there was, I don't know, for some reason there were certain shots of all the creatures that it looked like a, almost like one of those early tool videos where it yeah, just, a little bit. you could tell that, that it's CGI or claymation, whatever it is. Um, but it's good to know that um, that particular thing was uh, that that was the practical effects thing that I was thinking about somebody getting run over. Okay. That's awesome. Um, I did like how we got a little bit more blood and gore in, in the mm-hmm. mouth of madness than we did com- compared to Christine, which mm-hmm. was awesome. We actually 
because I have a lot more of it compared to Christine that, that I thought was cool. I put the, uh, the painting and the changing faces and all that. I put that into this category. That yeah, was a really here. cool, creepy painting. Um, did like that. Uh, let me see here. Just I got the bloody door. I like that whole thing. Just kind of being this atmosphere, this constant rumbling door and the blood behind it or the blood coming down from it. Just knowing that there's monsters there. So yeah, man, like we hit a lot, we hit a lot of stuff on the, um, on the effects things. Like that's, it was pretty cool um i don't think that any of the effects like are as great as the car reassembling itself like i mean no, that sure. was just fucking awesome sure. but uh but but still there were some really really cool effects uh in the mouth of madness so did you have anything else for the positives just that i i i didn't notice this until like my i, I did like a watch and a half um basically like i watched it once and then just kind of um fast forward through to like parts that i wanted to see again so i'll call it a watch and a half I, I didn't notice this un, like until my half watch after reading some of the trivia and stuff that whenever so like we, we when we get to the final after the final confrontation with Kane where uh, Sam Neill's transported he's on that bus and Kane's sitting there mm-hmm. next to him talking to him he says do you know my favorite color was blue and then everything everything's under a blue filter the seats are blue everyone's wearing yep. blue great yep the, that's actually in there throughout the entire movie any close up on any character their eyes are blue Yes. Yeah. I saw that too. Yes. You bet, dude. Definitely. And, and I, when I, I was, I, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that when I was reading that piece of trivia, um, I, the scene where everything goes to blue happened like 15 seconds later. So I'm like making notes about that. And then like, Oh yeah. Then he says it. And then the whole thing turns to blue. I love that shot mm-hmm. out of the blue uh, when everything goes to blue. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's just love that stuff. Love the, I mean, no, but like every like throughout the movie, every single close up of everyone, their eyes are blue. Mm-hmm. Even like the kids and stuff, and like the yep. even the warped eyes of people, like the, those crazy blue eyes and stuff. That, that really, really yeah. awesome stuff. So yeah, that very was interesting. Really very cool. interesting that they that they really, said really again. Cool. This is I, I it just I guess this is I guess this goes more to production and direction, but I it's one of those things that like they seed all of this stuff early. Because they're they are inviting you to like in the same way that Sam Neill is being invited, that John Trent's being invited to cut apart the books and put the puzzle pieces together. That's like mm-hmm. that symbolism. Like, hey, you viewer, start putting the puzzle pieces together because there's shit that we're lying down early mm-hmm. that you should be paying attention to. Yeah. It's going to matter later. Of course, of course, dude. And that's a really cool way that they tied it all together with that that blue shots and mm-hmm. everything. God, I, I fucking love that. I just, I didn't expect that either. And I thought that was a really, really cool, like, little snippet of uh, filming there, for sure. Mine, the one that I got, dude, I absolutely love this. The creepy old guy on the bike. I fucking mm-hmm. loved this element. There was something cool about this, just the visuals of this old guy riding around on the bike and everything like that in the town. And I know that he starts off as the young guy and then it becomes an old guy and then they hit him on with their car and stuff. And he still sounds like a young guy. And he only really makes like two other appearances, like two appearances in the movie yeah. total. But I thought that was a really cool, really cool, just something to have off to the side for atmosphere. And the reason that I do feel this way about, and I'll tell you this really quick is, uh, one time in about 2000, 2002, somewhere in that area, 
me and Mike Voss and one of our other friends, we were driving around smoking a whole bunch of weed, as you do when you are that age and you can't smoke weed in your own house. And uh, we're driving in my car and we're up in Brecksville on the corner of 82 and 21, like a couple hundred feet up the road from mm-hmm. the Honey Hut. And there's that BP that's on the corner mm-hmm. there. OK, and we're we're stopped at a light and we're all chiefing and everything like that. I mean, this looks like it's like back to the future. It's every stoner in every car you've ever seen in your life. And we look over to the right just casually. And there's a guy, an old guy in the car next to us who looks exactly like that guy. And he is just staring <laughs> daggers at us as we're like boss is like hitting a bowl and stuff like that. And he looks over and it's just like one of the creepiest images you could possibly see. And um, the face of that old guy, remi- it is almost to the T what um, this dude looked like in Brexville. It's just kind of one of those um, one of those images from your mm-hmm. life that's just forever going to be, in, you know, embedded in your mind and stuff. And it was kind of and in a way the guy on the bike did have that kind of effect on me as the seeing an old guy spy on the smoke weed at mm-hmm. the, the corner of 82 and 21 in Brexville. so <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, I had to throw that in there like I, I did love the old guy it kind of in a way was it did have a saw like kind of vibe to it you know but without without all the weight that the jigsaw carries um on the saw just particularly the whole dude on a bike mm-hmm. thing so mm-hmm. all right so we did the positives so we're going to flip the script now and we're going to go for the negatives. So um, direction, production, music, what are what are some of your negatives? I, I guess not not any real – I wouldn't call this a negative. These are just, I guess, more wants in terms of like the direction of production, right? Like it feels like when we get to Hobbs End, a few things kind of get rushed. Um, if this was a modern – granted, this movie is like an hour and 35 minutes. So it's like not surprising that it feels rushed. And I think, I think part of that is just – how we watch movies now we're like expecting we're expecting movies to be like fucking three hours like every every single one of mm-hmm. them and i'm i'm not sure why all of a sudden we're watching movies again in the 1940s um but that's <laughs> kind of what works i mean like it's it's absurd to me that action movies are two and a half hours long they do not need to be that long horror movies do not need to be approaching three hours there's no reason for them to be that long so I think it's that's just sort of a byproduct of this. If this was a modern horror movie, we'd be in Hobbs End for 75 to 80 minutes. Yeah. Oh, dude, without a doubt, man. And yeah, you're right. There is definitely a little bit of rushing there. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it all goes back to everything that you were just saying there. There's something about the way audiences perceive movies now funny people a comedy is like two hours and 45 minutes so i mean it's just there's something going on here where if you want my personal take on it dude i personally believe that um because movies are costing so much that people are really you know they're they're trying to keep people in the theaters as long as possible maybe give them their money's worth that's the only thing i can think of but it's just yeah but that's also like counterintuitive you want to run that movie as many times as possible isn't it? Yeah. No, I, yeah, you're right. That's the other thing too, is you run them. Yeah. So I don't know. Like it, that's just, it's just something that I feel though. I don't know. It's weird. You're, yeah. you're entirely right on it. It's very, very counterintuitive, but there's no other reason in my mind that I could possibly think of for making Adam Sandler in a two hour and 45 minute <laughs> comedy. You're, you're like, or yeah, you're, and you make a good point with some of these like longer horror movies and stuff too. Like, I mean, at some point in time, like you just don't get scared anymore. And even like, even the big scare at the end that comes in every single fucking horror movie known to man, by the time you get to that after two hours, you're kind of desensitized to the movie. I mean, like, mm-hmm. what else is possibly going to happen in the end that they didn't do in the first two hours? So, yeah, man, like there's like a little bit of but I 
when I say rushing, I think back then it's probably textbook writing, but right. now right. is the way that we're conditioned to, um, conditioned as audiences. I think that that's just something that we're going to notice from now on. And mm -hmm. like, even like take when we did clue, for example, like in clue in the first five minutes, you got the introduction, to every character, you got a little bit about them and that writing is just genius on a whole other level, which is, I think, why as a modern audience member, I didn't feel that that was rushed in the sense that we're talking about right, here. Right. But um, it is it is definitely something that um, worth noting. And once again, something else going on four podcast episodes in a row where we reference that five good minutes that feels like the first time I'm telling you, man, that's, <laughs> that's exactly, that's exactly what this feels like. It's just our modern audience selves just kind of taken over there and, and feeling mm -hmm. like that, dude, definitely. No, yeah. I, I got you for sure on that. And uh, the one that I had for this man, get ready. Cause I, I totally deleted this category from the original outline because right now I'm going to tell you outright. I did not like the music on this. We didn't even get to see John Carpenter. You might as well not even yeah. put a composing credit to his name on this. Yep. And like take the opening sequence, for example. Now, I really dug the whole everything going through the printers and stuff. It reminded me of the beginning of Christine. I thought it was a really cool way to kind of introduce like exactly like maybe what the actual villain of the movie is, which is the books or the, the conduit for the evil, which is right. the books and stuff. And in the first probably like five to 10 seconds, you get a really cool opening piano riff. And I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. He's like steering away from his usual synth synth wave stuff. He's going for something that's a little more up tempo. And then all of a sudden it just kicks into an enter Sandman knockoff, which is, <laughs> I was going to thank you. Continue. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll pick this yeah. up. Continue. Sorry. Okay. So I found, so immediately that's what I thought of. And I was doing some research on this and I found an article on louder.com. And this was from 11 months ago. It didn't give me the specific publication date, but it's from louder.com. And there's this quote that says, uh, from John Carpenter, well, In the Mouth of Madness was inspired by Metallica and the Black Album. We wanted to enter Sandman. We, well, we wanted to do Enter Sandman. Uh, that we wanted to do Enter Sandman for that, and we didn't get it. So we just made it up. And Daniel's dad played lead guitar on it for me, and it he thinks it turns out great. And he says <laughs> his kids got him into a Metallica. He wasn't even paying attention to Metallica. And here's where I think this is interesting: is that this um, there's this guy named Jim Lang who kind of uh, partnered up with Carpenter to do the music for this movie. Mm -hmm. This guy went on to do the score work and theme work for Nickelodeon's Hey Arnold, which I thought was just this cool little like, stupid piece of trivia. Yeah. You, it, that kind of came on towards like, I think the tail end of us getting into like uh, Nickelodeon cartoons. I think Ren and Stimpy was probably already off the air by the time uh, Hey Arnold was on and stuff. So um, th it was one of the Nickelodeon cartoons that I'm not as familiar with. That's, that's what I'm getting here. But I, I didn't dig the music. Like it was just, I don't know. At that point in time, like Carpenter, I don't even think he needed to put his name on it in any way, shape or form. It's nothing like his style. We don't even get to see his taste, his like beauty, the, the beauty of like syncing up the music mm -hmm. to different events in, the, in mm -hmm. the, the movie and stuff. It just wasn't there. So the big thing that um, was worthy of me taking away an entire category and putting it into the negatives was not a fan of the music for um, in the mouth of madness. No, th th and, and thank you. Like I was literally sitting there when I was first watching it, my brain was like, my brain was just like, why, like, why am I here? Why am I not hearing enter Sandman the way I think? Like I literally just thought yeah. it was just enter Sandman. And I'm like, right. I'm like, wait, this doesn't sound quite right. 
Like it's, it's, mm-hmm. you know, what I mean? like it's, it's sort of yeah. like when your, your, your mom makes you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and uses the wrong peanut butter, you yep. know, it's instead yep. of Jif, it's, it's Skippy or vice versa, whatever. I, mm-hmm. I was just like, uh, hold on. Like it, it actually was distracting. Then I'm like, yeah, why doesn't like, am I remembering the song entirely wrong? And then, you know, we hear it again at the end and I'm like, no, they just made a song that sounded exactly like it. It sounded yep. 80% like Gunner Sandman. Yep, dude, you're exactly right on this. And here's, I'll give you like an interesting like little piece of, this is kind of what leads me to believe. And I, this has kind of been done, um, well, not in 1990. I can give you another example of this being done is what I'm saying here is, um, so you know that MTV show, The State, that was on in like the early 90s Mm -hmm. and stuff. So I guess when The State was originally on, MTV obviously was nowhere near what it was today and even what we grew up with in like the later part of the 90s and 2000s. So MTV at the time was trying to get this comedy show just to do something different. And they got the the guys from the state together. And what MTV did was they're like, hey, guys, you can have access to all the music in our vault. Just take it, make it background music for the show. So you got some really good tunes like you got some Green Day stuff. You got um, specifically is what I'm going to talk about is the Breeders Cannonball and um, the Red Hot Chili Peppers Soul to Squeeze. Like, you you know, those two songs. Right. So. When you watch the state DVD that came out within the last 10 years, the music has changed completely. And what happened is, is because all of those bands that were basically nobodies in the early part of the 90s are just kind of up and coming that are mega stars now. It was so expensive to get the licensing for the DVD release, which happened, like I said, within the last 10 years. So what these people did as a workaround was they started recording songs that basically sound exactly like Soul to Squeeze and exactly like Cannonball. Mm. And when you watch these reruns of the state, it is so noticeable. It's not even funny. And like Soul to Squeeze, for example, has got a very, very, very distinct kind of guitar intro. It's like, you know, like five or six notes all compi- compiled into a riff. So imagine like you're hearing like the first four notes and they're the same and then like notes four through like 14 are completely different. You're like, Oh yeah, this is no, what the hell is this? You know? And that's the same. Yeah. That's exactly what I got with the beginning of in the mouth of madness. It's almost like you're right. Like they're like, okay, so we can't get inner Sandman. What if we just played it the same song, but at a couple chords different, we'll be good to go. It, it's, uh, it was it's so bizarre. <laughs> it's just so bizarre. Just such a, I didn't, and by the way, I didn't know that about the state. Um, that's, that's a, that's a, that is a wonderful little piece of trivia there. And it's, it is on brand for the state, regardless mm-hmm. of, yeah. of the circumstances that's on brand right. for the state. Yeah. You know, you're, you're definitely right on that, dude. That is so on brand mm-hmm. for them, for sure. But yeah, so, so I had to, I had to trash the music a little bit, dude. Yeah. Like this was the one time that I, this is the one point in time in the outline where I'm like, yep, I got to unfold about the music. So now that I've done so, did you have anything else in the production? Um, no, no, uh, that was it. Just, production? yeah, you, you hit the music stuff and it, it that was, I, and, and truth be told, I don't remember any of the rest of the score throughout the movie. So yeah, I don't either. Yeah, I don't even know if they had one. Right. <laughs> like, I, I, no idea if they had I, one. I feel like there was, but it's just, who cares? Obviously, I don't, th- I don't think like a great score would have necessarily enhanced anything either way. I mean, maybe it would have a little bit, but whatever. It's just go right. ahead and skip the credits, I guess, if you're really that, if you don't want to hear, if you don't want to be confused <laughs> by a song. Yeah, exactly. If you think you're going to hear Enter Sandman by Metallica, just skip ahead to the uh, the first scene of the movie for yep. sure. 
So acting and writing, what are some of the uh, negatives from the acting and writing? So I really just have one overall sort of thing that they, and it's, and it's a big thing. Um, so this movie is supposed to be a little confusing, right? It's supposed to be a puzzle box that, that you're looking at and you're trying to kind of pick apart along with the characters. Mm-hmm. It's a little too confusing at points. Um, is, okay. like, is Kane, can you answer me, answer, can you answer me these questions, basically? Is Kane controlling reality? I am unable to answer that because I can't tell if he's control. I can't see that's the thing. I can't con- tell if he's control of all reality or if he's just controlling right. over the people so, that read his books. Right. So, okay. That's, that's one question. I can't answer it either. Cause that's where I come to. So is Trent is John Trent solely in a book or a movie? Oh, that's a good question too, because it makes me wonder is was John Trent even born? Like, was right. he actually like, you know, did, does he have a high school? Did he go to college after that? Like, and yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I can't answer that one, but I'll I'm okay. kind of respond to and, some of the stuff when you're done. Yeah. And then, and then the same, like, then the same question for, is it all a movie? Cause obviously we see the movie at the end or is it some kind of combination of Kane controlled reality? Trent is in a book and he's watching his own movie. I, I don't think that they, I like they kind of tease that it could be any one of these things. Um, mm-hmm. Or, and also, and actually I'll, I'll add to it. A fourth thing, like you said, is Kane controlling reality or is Kane Kane controlling his readers um, who are thus, you know, obviously, you know, the book controlling, you know, certain segments of reality. I like I like that this is sort of open ended, but I think we needed to be pushed in one of these options. Be it K- Kane is in fact controlling all of reality that all everything that we know that we're watching is under Kane's control, or mm-hmm. we need or it needs to be very like that that John Trent is a book character in a book and he's just being awakened to that. Like I think we yeah. need to be pushed one direction or the other just a little bit farther. No, you make a really, really, really good point on that. And like, this is a problem that I've always had with not necessarily the the meta film, but when it comes to these different layers of like, who is supposed to be fictional, who is reality? Like, yeah. I know that I know that. Yeah, Adam, dude, you're just watching the movie. Just shut the fuck up and watch the movie. But however, there are times where. And it only exists in certain movies. And I go to Stranger Than Fiction, which I talk about way too much on this podcast. But um, that's <laughs> it's kind it's kind of like something that um, it's confusing. Okay, like, and I know that like once again, you're watching a movie. You're you know in your in the theater in the house watching a movie. And I guess like it would just be nice to know that is this one of these things where like yes, like what you are seeing is the real world. Did john have like you know normal like life experiences because he doesn't ever really talk about his past it's not like hey man you know when i Mm -hmm. first got into insurance back in kansas city lighting up a cigarette and stuff it's not like that at all and i just think that like i know that like i shouldn't normally be asking the questions about like john trent's past and everybody's past and stuff like that but when you don't establish like what you're actually watching or clue the audience in as to what it is instead of just shotgunning three or four different kind of what this could be. It does kind of create a little bit of the disorienting thing because towards the end, like when you, um, I think it goes probably like right around the time where Kane hands him the manuscript from that point to the movie on 
that's where it does get a little confusing because it's like, okay, so John's a character in the book, but he did all of this and he dropped the manuscript off like five months ago. So what happened? Like, what am I missing here? Like, what is the thing that they're not telling me? Did I miss something or did that really just happen? But I don't know. There's not enough there to allow me to, Follow this in like a concrete fashion, right? And and you, I, I'm I, I'm glad you brought that up because there's like three things in spe- in particular that sort of for me throw it throw it in a way that like you can't that makes it almost impossible to track. Um, one is one is the manuscript that Trent supposedly delivered months before. So, is this a book or is this a movie or is this again Kane controlling reality? Um, <clears throat> two, the apocalypse is happening. So is, but is this happening in a book or is this happening in reality? Or is this like, right. So like, we're like, we're notified that the apocalypse is going on. So is this just Trent sort of laughing that Trent sort of laughing at the end that, um, excuse me, Trent sort of laughing at the end that like, he realizes finally, I am just, I'm not a real person. I'm a book character. And this is the movie that they made out of my book. Or is it that Trent is laughing because Kane Kane does have control of reality? Right. Yeah. And then did, and then, he, did Kane? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just like, did Kane put him in the theater? You know what right. I'm saying? Like, right. It, yeah. So the, like those like oh and just one other thing like how how the how the manuscript like when we when he leaves Hobbs End after you know after his adventures there we're kind of supposed to be in the real world I guess. But like it feels like you know how does the manuscript refind him again? Stuff like like yeah, there's no, that's, how does right. it get delivered to him unless it is so like there's just three things for me that like make it hard to track exactly which direction they want you to like how the like I guess which which direction the meta movie is leaning reality is being mm-hmm. controlled by someone or like we are literally in a book you know. Yeah, 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 of course, man. No, of course. And then you could do what I did, which is completely stupid. And then you're like, well, what if this is all in his head, which is then being written down in a book somewhere? (laughs) There's just so many different ways that you could take this. And I got to be honest with you, dude. Like, so there is a, for me being as big a fan as the movies as I am, there is one particular style that like, it's, it's very similar to like what we're talking about here. And I'm just going to be really quick with this. Mm -hmm. And have you ever, you know, these movies where like it takes place, the main character is the main character. Okay. Like Wilfred is a great example of this. Okay. Now, and I knew, I know that they kind of answer this as you get along to in the end of Wilfred and everything, but it's Elijah Wood as a human being it's mm-hmm. a physical flesh and blood human being that touches other human beings now when he has the talking dog character that only he can talk to the one thing i always wonder is like what does it look like from when other people are looking at this character do yeah. they see him talking to the other person is it just like them do are they talking to elijah wood and he's just standing there frozen and in that frozen time that's when he's having a conversation with wilfred i cannot get over this this like it bugs me every time and there's this um i think there's this kevin coster movie called mr brooks where william hurt is like a a similar kind of character like you know a personification of his thoughts and everything and i cannot fucking figure it out like i just cannot figure it out it bugs the hell out of me every time i see it where i'm just like okay so he's in the car 
He's, he's him and William Hurt are having the car. Or Elijah Wood and Wolford are in the car, and they're having a conversation with other people that are in the car, but they're having a conversation mm-hmm. with themselves. And it's just I can't I, I just can't figure it out, man. And this kind of with the way that they did this whole thing with the end of um, in the mouth of madness and what you're talking about here, yeah, that that's kind of what it reminds me of. And it's just a giant gumbo of crap in your mind, and you just can't push the, piece it all together. I I wonder if um, again, just like to point back to. The thing, like the thing, is intentionally confusing um, because it, it wants to make you feel like you're trapped along with all the researchers, uh, you know, in the space, right? Um, mm-hmm. it, it, so it wants it, it's confusing intentionally, but like I said before, this the, the, this video actually, really, not, I don't want to say blows my mind. It's not like that fucking eye opening, but it does point out things mm-hmm. that you probably just took for granted or didn't notice. And I wonder if they were to do the same thing with the with uh, with this movie, if you could track which one they want to point you towards. I don't think you could. Yeah, I like I'm gonna have to watch this uh, thing video. So please send me a link to sure. that. But from what just from what you've described, I can't I can't pinpoint that either. I mean, it must be the highest brow of writing humanly possible. To, to include that kind of stuff and have between me watching it two and a half times and you seeing it during your times watching it and everything that we wouldn't be able to figure this out between the two of us, you particularly. Like, there's no way that you would not be able to figure this out if it was there to be found. Right, that's, I that like, I really, like, that was that was kind of like the, the half watch mostly was to try to okay. track what we were doing with the book and the manuscript and everything. And it just doesn't, it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite track with, like, what we're being shown, so... You know, yeah, like again, I, it's 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 you know it's an open ended kind of ending, which you know take you know questions not being answered. That's totally fine, but like I feel like there is like one question left unanswered that we needed to be that we needed to be um, informed on for the ending to make a little bit more sense. Yeah, I do. I completely completely understand what you're saying. I could not agree anymore, and I'm going to. I'm going to keep this one short for mine because there's no way in hell that it is anywhere as good as that. But there's one <laughs> thing with the acting that bugged the shit out of me. And the fact that Charlton Heston was in this movie, like you remember when you were talking about Nicole Kidman and everything and it being distracting. Mm-hmm. This was such a distraction for me. Like I, I, I'm not entirely familiar with the eighties to nineties career of Charlton Heston. You know, I don't know if he was as big as he was during the Ben Hur days or if in terms of like popularity, you know, if he was more or less popular, I'm just going to assume that he wasn't as popular, but when you see Charlton Heston and especially knowing what we know about Charlton Heston as like the modern day, like NRA guy, mm-hmm. it just, and I know that this isn't John Carpenter's fault. I know this is all, this is nobody's fault, but it was just, too much of a distraction for me because all I'm seeing is the NRA guy. All I'm seeing is like the commercials for old people that he did. I'm not really seeing an actor there. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that, like, I'm not saying that these scenes fell flat or anything. Cause I mean, it's Charlton Heston, dude. Like, I mean, you know, it's a freaking Ben Hur up in there. <laughs> right. One of the but, greatest actors that ever acted. Yeah. Yeah. Planet, original Planet of the Apes, yep. right? Yeah, yep. yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's Charlton Heston up in there, but it just, it just doesn't feel right. And like, I, it almost feels like that this is like one of the biggest stars like Carpenter ever had in one of his movies. And if you are going to get Charlton Heston, like the name Charlton Heston in one of your movies, like, 
I don't know, man. The publisher, like, I don't know. It, it just kind of took me for a whim. I didn't really see that one coming. Even when I was, like, scrolling through the IMDb actors, I just totally overlooked it because it was like, holy shit, like, Charlton Heston <laughs> is in this movie. And I don't know. Like, I just – the way Charlton Heston has aged, um, you know, in our timeline, it's – I don't know, man. Jess and I were watching the, we were watching the Fresh Prince. Like we, we just got done with that like a couple weeks ago. We watched the whole thing and uh, Donald Trump makes an appearance in one of the Fresh Prince episodes. Mm-hmm. And I remember how like in the nineties, I would have thought that was awesome. Like, dude, Donald Trump is on the Fresh Prince and mm-hmm. they fucking love him. And, and do like Will Smith and uncle Phil are giving him high fives and everything. And when you see that now, it, like it was, yeah. it was disturbed. It was really disturbing. Mm-hmm. Like Jess and I like any humor, anything like it was sucked out of the, the scene and stuff. It was just like, Oh, like he did an episode of the fresh Prince. And that's kind of the same thing I got with the Charlton Heston's appearance in this movie. Yeah. I, a hundred dude, I, I'm with you that a hundred percent. It would have been, I'll tell you what, it would have been great if every time we met Jackson Harlow, Harglow, if he was like out like hunting, yeah, like we had to go. Like, I know. We had to go meet him, like while he's like shooting quail or something. Yep. Yeah, just some kind of working in that whole like NRA thing. That actually would have been. I think I would have laughed. Like it, it, I would have been. I, I, yeah. Distracted. I would have been laughing exactly. hysterically if that was the case. But Don, yeah, no, you're hundred percent right. I was I was seriously like half expecting him to be holding a gun. Like the every scene, every time he like showed him, like just like just mm-hmm. packing heat on his like on his hip or something. It's, right, right. You're right. It, it is just sort of the way we think about Charlton Heston now. Um, you know, I'm, and you know, but that was like that was even there in the '90s. Not, not the, not maybe to the same degree. Um, but it was there in the '90s. It's just you're right. Like that's that's a really distracting actor to have um, to have in this type of movie. It would be like it would be like in something like um, I, I don't know, like in something like um, uh, Midsummer, if like Michael Douglas was in a scene, you'd be like, Whoa, like what right. the fuck is he doing here? Like this yeah, is kind of, I mean, like I he's a great actor and everything, but like, why the fuck are you in the scene? Yeah, dude. And it made me kind of think about like just cameos in general and stuff. And I, I, I hate to say this, but like, I'm kind of just preserving cameos from now on to comedies. Like if it's, yes. Now when I say, yes. so like when I say cameos, like, in this Zack Snyder Justice League that's about to come out, Jared Leto's Joker is supposed to be in it. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm assuming that it's going to be fucking awful because it's Jared Leto's Joker. Mm-hmm. But however, like, that is going to be one cameo I'm at least intrigued by in a non-comedy film. But other than, like, it just, it really takes away from a lot of stuff in drama and horror when you have to focus on, like, a big name just kind of being in there in these small scenes, like in a comedy, if that was Charlton Heston, like, and they have to go like find him and he's shooting guns and turns out, Hey, he's actually human hunting. Yeah. I'm going to laugh at that nine days out of the week. All right. Right. But um, when it comes to horror and dramas and stuff, like I'm, I'm really like not about the cameo. If you're going to do the cameo, you might as well just do the glorified cameo where at least the person's on for like 15 minutes in a story arc or something. But just the, the random stopover and all coming in like, hey, by the way, Brad Pitt wants to do this. Yeah, I, I'm kind of over that. Yep. You know how you do a cameo? Like you do a good cameo? You do The Rock in the Reno 911 movie. Where he's, he's in that? Yep. He's in it for about two minutes and he blows himself up. Okay. okay. And that's it. Interesting. 
Interesting. That's, that's very cool. That that honestly reminds me of Brad Pitt's cameo in Deadpool 2, where all we do is just see his face and he gets fried on some electrical yep. wires. Yep. That's kind of how you. That's, that's definitely how you do it. Exactly what it and is. And it's a glorious death. Like, it's the kind of death The Rock would not take part in now in one of his movies. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, because in, now in his movies, he's got to live and he's got to be the guy dragging yep. the bad guy into the jail cell. And I can't even imagine, like, what his contract must look like for one of his movies and stuff. Like, I mean, it's got to be like ridiculously oh. long with all the do's and don'ts oh, of the characters. It's, it's they have, they have a punch counter. So like if, if there's like a punch equation. So like if the rock gets hit twice, he's got to deal like two and a half times the damage. <laughs> I swear to God, that's like a real thing. I, no, I, I believe it, dude. I believe it. I, I saw this. Um, I saw like a little like, sheets it was like a one sheet of the rules for the roadrunner and wildy coyote cartoons mm-hmm. and this like you know there's only like there's like 10 things or something on there which i guarantee you the rock has got more than 10 things but the fact that they like do these kinds of specifics are, it is just incredible to me man and I, a punch ratio yeah i buy that all the way like yep. you had me at you had me at punch ratio yeah. without a doubt <laughs> <Punch ratio. laughs> Anyway, anyway, uh, yeah, and and that and this is this to me is the most absurd thing of all. He gets paid. He gets paid to tweet about the movies that he's in. And and does post he really? And, and post on Instagram. Yeah, he gets paid in some in Instagram posts. It's like five hundred thousand dollars per Instagram post about a movie that he is starring in, and we'd already have a vested interest in promoting. Wow um okay yeah wow and now that i kind of think about what the rocks instagram account looks like and yeah man like i could see that because he does do these posts every now and then that it almost seems like somebody is writing them for him or even so much like hey rock can you speak from the heart but then let us touch it up a little bit and now knowing that that makes all the sense in the world dude that 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 makes all the sense in the world to I, me that, that I, he would be doing something like that. I don't that. think anyone touches those up. I think he's just that savvy. Like, he's, you know, you know, like, we talked about, like, how the WWE is, like, training for action movie stars, basically. Um, yeah. And, you know, how to, like, have a stage presence and that kind of stuff. He was always already really great at that. I, I really think that that, like, that is him. He's just that savvy and that good at doing it. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. That's pretty naive of me to think that The Rock being as much of the man as he is could not put together uh, an Instagram post. That's really naive of me, and I'm sorry, Dwayne Johnson. I didn't mean to offend you like that. <laughs> anyway, sorry about starting to derail that completely. Okay. But... Uh, no problem, dude. You want to talk about The Rock for 40 more minutes? Let's do it. I can do it any day. <laughs> okay, so let me see here. I think we're on um, effects work. Yeah, so are there any negatives in the uh, effects work that, um, just, that you could think of? Just a couple we mentioned before that like just some of the CGI work is a little bit dated. Um, you know, obviously there's no, there's not many, <clears throat> there aren't many films from the early and mid nineties that hold up CGI wise anymore. Um, I mean, you know, even, even in 10 years ago, there's not many that would have held up. Um, so like, that's, that's a very obvious one. Um, I, I did think that like, we did need some kind of visual for the infection or the epidemic, but it just felt very cliche to me. You know, the blood dripping from the eyes and the nose and stuff. The kind of like right. pale skin, like you're dying, um, mm-hmm. just something like that's just like we've seen that in countless, countless horror movies. What what I did like and what they should have like kind of played off of more when um, you know when he gets attacked, when he and his friend get attacked by the by the axe wielding man, as we learn is his uh, Sutter Kane's agent. The dual pupil thing that was fucking interesting. 
Like, why couldn't we have done more of that? Yeah, I got you on that, dude. I definitely, we only saw the crazy blue eyes like two or three times throughout the whole movie and stuff. Like the, yeah. the, the crazy ones, not just like everybody having the close up with the blue eyes, but the right. crazy blue eyes. Yeah, I could definitely see, I could agree with you on that. Like the, um, the visuals of the pandemic could have been heightened a little bit more and they mm. all could have had maybe like some kind of distinct symbol that lets people know that they're And I know that's probably what they're going with, like the blood and the sure. eyes and all that stuff, but they probably could have done something a little bit better or maybe like introduce like um, some type of imagery, like in the book that's being printed in the beginning and like the cover of one of the books is something that they all have on their faces or some shit like that. Or um, they're like, whatever it be like the, like you said, with the blue eyes or yeah, the haircuts, whatever the hell it is, you know? So th- there could have been a little bit more visual representation for those who were infected. I, I completely agree with you on that one. And um, the only thing that I could add to this part with the negative, it's just kind of echo some of the stuff that we talked about before and that is when it came to the creatures and stuff and like some of these like early 90s like i mean the creatures like yeah those are cool creatures i don't think that they were as cool as we got in the thing but then again it's one of these movies that this isn't necessarily a creature movie i just Mm -hmm. thought the creatures were kind of like an added bonus um to what we were already getting so i can understand them maybe not putting as much emphasis on on like doing really good creature work like they did in the thing but um i will say that there is just something about, and I know this is like early on before it was perfected and everything like that, but there is just something about that, these nineties effects, not only in, in the mouth of madness, but they just don't age well, like over time. I mean, it's just, it's really, really noticeable, um, with some of these nineties effects and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I always go back to the early tool videos. Like that's exactly what I see every single time I see these kind of effects. And is it like, is it their fault? No, it's just a thing of the times. But right. I will say that even when they were when they were probably thinking of this, I highly doubt that they ever could imagine that CGI would become what it is today. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, exactly. It, it's yeah. They're just prisoners, prisoners of that particular moment in time. Nothing you can do about it. Yeah, nothing you could do. So uh, just to end it, do you have anything else or anything you would change in the negatives? Just a, just a quick, um, just a couple quick things uh, with like the creature work. I, I would have had more, more scenes of like Mrs. Pickman becoming the creature, right? Um, I, I would have had, that's actually how I would have like set the people, um, the people that are infected by the epidemic apart. Like we see it with the kids in the town, how like their mm-hmm. faces and stuff are transforming. More of that. Just like a little, just a couple steps more of that to to kind of you know emphasize it. Um, I would have loved to have been at that church a little bit more often. It's just such a cool location. Um, yeah, that would have been pretty cool. Um, and I think we needed like these kids to kill a person. Oh yeah, I didn't just, think about that. Yeah, yeah. Just they they needed to have them not to kill. Maybe in some kind of bizarre like grotesque manner. Um, but it, like it, it could have been, it could have been, this is one of those movies. Like I think like, like I wanted from Christine, I wanted more violence. I wanted more mm-hmm. like splatter violence. I didn't, I don't necessarily need that from this, but I just need like a little more, someone needs to get a kill here and there to kind of, to kind of like emphasize that like things are going, things are about to go to hell for, uh, John and, uh, and Linda, St- excuse me, and Linda yeah. Stiles. Yeah, dude, something to, like, reinforce the fact that, like, hey, you guys are really in a dangerous as shit, fucked up town and everything. Like, and I know that um, uh, Wilhelm von Holmberg does kill himself, but it's just not enough. And I think, like, with with the kids, like, the kids specifically, and that's a really good point that you make there, they could have, like, 
I don't know, been running down the street chasing after somebody, that person falls and they just all eat them or something, or they imply that these kids are eating this guy, is something to give them a little bit more of a threatening, um, like a threatening kind of vibe than just like, hey, by the way, these are creepy kids with blue eyes and stuff they, like that. Yeah, yes. they, they tried to do it. I think it's, it's, it, it's uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think I saw this. The second time that Linda sees them, um, they've torn off the leg of that dog. It's running on three legs. True. Did they really? I think so. Okay. So like it's, it, but like the dog is still oh, like yes. with them. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. I know what you're talking about. So yes. That, yes. Yes. That dog should have been like completely eaten. You know what I mean? Yeah, like they literally have like a dog skull or something with them. Yes, something like, yeah, just something to know that they're sinister as shit and like doing something with a pet. Like we don't have to see that. We don't have to see it at all. We don't have to see the dog, you know, but like something to give us the illusion that these kids are are capable than a little bit of a little bit more than just like showing up and looking really, really creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I agree agree with you, uh, definitely. And just just one last thing. I would have liked a little bit more Sutter Kane, mostly because I would have liked to see... I would have liked to seen, uh, you know, the three our three main characters have a little bit more uh, screen time, a little bit more more chances to act off each other, basically. Because I just, I, yeah, I think all the leads were really good. Yeah, the Sutter Kane thing that was one of the ones that I had. Like okay. Sutter Kane, we could have used if ten or fifteen minutes more, maybe mm-hmm. peppered in. I mean, maybe not even that much. Maybe even like between five and twelve minutes, something like that. Just a little bit more. And they don't even have to do it in the beginning. You know, like I'm actually I loved that they went all that time without us seeing yeah. him. But maybe something to like like how you said with the kids, like they could be making a kill. Maybe he does like a snap his fingers and like the townspeople explode. Just something to reinforce that this guy has this godlike power that maybe transcends beyond what he's able to do on the page mm-hmm. yeah no yeah definitely. absolutely definitely and the, the last one that i have this is a simple one and like they may have done this for some reason i don't think i picked up on it but i wanted something to kind of reinforce that this apocalypse was happening like all over the world and like it could have been something simple like news footage just kind of like maybe a little montage just kind of showing that this thing is spread and believe me like i get what's going on with the apocalypse i mean i do kind of think that the point was made but i think it would have been better reinforced with just something to let us know that this is going on all over the world no one knows how to stop it no one knows what's going on just something to like towards the end to kind of reinforce that that's what's happening in in the world i yes i 100 percent agree with you it felt like a very localized um, even like it, you know, obviously the Hobbs end doesn't exist. Um, so that really doesn't count. It feels like it's only happening on like a couple of streets in New York. Yeah. So you noticed that too. Okay. So yeah. like for a second there, like I thought maybe I missed something, but no. Okay. Yeah. You're right. It's a very, very localized, yeah. Localized apocalypse. Yes. You bet. And when the, you think apocalypse, you think the wiping out of like right. everybody, you know, right. <laughs> what, what they, what would have been like a better, maybe not better, but like what they could have included, um, without like, Obviously, like the newsreel kind of thing would have been would have worked. Um, you know, we've seen that a lot, but you know, you could have you could have done it anyway. I think what you could have done is like you show like like a, a an easy shot of like like a, a a wide shot of like New York City, like the power going out or something, or like right. you can see like fires popping up in various you know in the various boroughs and like buildings burning and stuff. 
Yeah, something on like more of a ma- – you're right. The lights going out in New York I think would convey the point that whatever's going on is big enough to be affecting New York City as a whole right. instead of what appears to be the, the bookshop district and like a couple other places. Yes, you're definitely right on that. Like yeah, something very simple like that I think would have said a lot and gone a long way um, if, they, if they were to have chose that route, which mm-hmm. they obviously, uh, obviously did not. So yeah, so those are my – um, those are my two things. So we're done wrapping up with the uh, positives and negatives, and we're going to move on to one of our more favorite things to talk about. Because I'm telling you, dude, I could talk about reboots and remakes until the cows come home, the sun goes down on Sundays, whatever the hell it is. <laughs> I love talking about remakes, so of course we have to talk about it. So I want to put out this situation for um for you and for everybody, just you know, kind of picture this in your mind. So let's just say you and I, we are you know the young up and coming screenwriters. We're in the in the pitch room. We are in front of the executives and we're getting ready to pitch a remake of In the Mouth of Madness. So I want to ask you, do you go with the full on remake or do you go with the psycho 1998 treatment? Uh, Chema, I go full on remake, but I keep as many of the elements that like really popped out as possible. So, you know, like the like the story, the story elements, like the important story elements are going to be exactly the same. The investigator looking for the missing horror writer, um, you know, pursuing him to a small town that happens to be non-existent, but they get they find their way there anyway. And you know, the encounters in the town lead the investigator to question his sanity and all of reality. Like that's like the most important. Those mm-hmm. are the most important story parts, right? Right. Then I would make sure that I take, you know, that I would make sure I take like, okay, that church was a really cool looking church. We have to include something like that. We have to include, you know, make sure that the town is a character. Um, and, 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 you know, if this was being remade, you know, if I was remaking this in a modern way, I would have that town sort of as, like, time went on, like, decay. You know, like, okay. the, the, the you know, like, the buildings look more decrepit, you know, day by day that he's there, um, or hour by hour, whatever. You, you can see, like, the changes happening as the changes are happening to the people. Um, I'd have that, I'd have that great scene with Mrs. Pickman. Um, you know, but I would, it, it would be, if I'm doing it, it'd be significantly more gruesome, um, mm-hmm. for sure. That's I'd okay. have, I'd have that great scene with, with Sutter Kane ripping himself out of our reality, I guess, and opening up the portal to a different reality. Like I'd keep a lot of that kind of stuff and then fill in different ways to get there. Okay. Dude, I gotcha. And all those, those are all very, very vital elements that you would have to have in the remake. Like those are things that mm. are non-negotiable all the way. I, on the other hand, I'm going a different approach, dude. I'm pitching them the Psycho 1998 treatment, and I'll tell you why. I think this could work. Like, back when we did the Psycho 98 and the Psycho uh, 64, A68 comparison, whatever it is, um, I could not think of really any movie that this could work for. But as I watched this movie and as I wrote down this question um, last night during the punch-up, it could work. I really think that it could work. Now, obviously, like everything with the creatures and all that will be more to a modern day scale with the CGI mm-hmm. and all that stuff. I'm not going full on here. I do want it to be enhanced to the best way that technology can enhance the movie. But I feel that the writing is still there. There, Like you're right, the, the whole rush thing or whatever, like, I don't know, we may may have to add one or two other scenes or something like they sure. did with Psycho 98, just really quick stuff or whatever. But I do think that it could work. And 
even the themes that they explore, like this idea of the apocalypse, I think could still work in, especially in 2020 and, uh, and especially in today's true. world that we're living Very in. Very true. Um, I do think that the idea of a book prompting or being the conduit for this apocalypse, I think that that works. I, I, I still, that would work all the way. It almost has this, um, it does have this sort of like infinite jest kind of undertone to it. And the way that David Foster Wallace's work has kind of had this, I guess, um, whatever you call second life, third mm-hmm. life, however many lives his work has had. I think that that might resonate well with audiences today. I even think that there might be some form of social commentary that you could make about this book driving people crazy and this almost being allegorical for like social media and stuff. So there is a certain sure. like relevance that um, that this movie presents to be remade in a modern time. And I, I just I don't know, like there's like I don't have much else beyond that to say that other than just as a gut feeling. But this could completely work if you just did the shot for shot, like line for line, maybe a couple additional things. Psycho 1998 treatment of a movie. I think it could work. I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you whatsoever. And I think I think in part is because this movie itself feels like it's a little bit ahead of its time. That mm-hmm. there really weren't that many horror... I don't think there were any horror movies like this at all at this point in time. Um, you know, there were psychological horror movies, and obviously we were familiar with John Carpenter by this point, but this was something that like really feels like the concept is something that it just, in 1995, just was like no one was exactly ready for. That now you could make this movie and it would make sense. Yes. This movie is 100% ahead of its time, dude. Like I right now, I'm not going to lie when I, I can't go off a major list of like nineties horror movies, like off the top of my head, but I don't remember anything being like this. I remember slashers. I remember the nightmare on Elm street series kind of coming to it's like, you know, second or first end, whatever you want to, the first end, no mm. second end because it was West Cre- Freddy's dead, then the new nightmare. So it ended twice. And I don't, I remember teen comedy horrors, I guess maybe scream was like right around the corner, like uh, in 96, but I don't really remember too many movies being like this. I definitely don't remember any movies casting such a large net of horror and encompassing so many things in 90 minutes that this, I could comfortably say that this movie is ahead of its time. And I, it's weird. Like I, I, I think like I see, I use that phrase a little bit too much in conversation. Like, Oh, something is ahead of its time in certain times, certain cases. When I use that, I maybe only half know what I'm talking about this time. <laughs> I know full on yeah. that this movie is ahead of its time for fucking sure. So mm-hmm. that's why I feel that it's, it could totally work. So in your, in your re in your um, remake, who would you cast as um, Trent styles and um, Sutter Kane? Um, where, where would you like me to start? You just want me to go in order? Go in whatever you want to. Right. However I'll you just, have it written down. I'll just go right down in order. All right. So for John Trent, I, I feel like we, we need, again, we need someone that has like an interesting kind of like natural charisma that makes him like an authority figure. And there's, there's plenty of actors that kind of are currently doing this kind of stuff. Like they're usually playing like cops and stuff on TV, right? Or federal agents mm-hmm. on like a procedural Um, so I'm going with one of those guys, but who more recently playing authority, playing an authority figure in a very different way. I'm going with Cliff Curtis. He's also a Kiwi, another New Zealand actor. Um, Cliff Curtis most recently was in Fear of the Walking Dead as, uh, one of the leads with, uh, with Kim Dickens. 
mm-hmm. if, if, if people out there, he's he looks like a Maori um, warrior with What's a up? big crooked nose. Um, he's been in tons of stuff the last like twenty years or so. But uh, yeah, Cliff Curtis a lot of Cliff Curtis a lot of times is playing uh, playing cops, playing federal agents. Um, like I said, in Fear of the Walking Dead, he is definitely like the unquestioned leader of their. Well, I shouldn't say unquestioned leader, but one of the leaders of like this particular group of people that we're following. And that he's got good charisma. He's 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 interesting. I, I feel like he would just be an interesting presence to have in in a horror movie. Um, I, I I can't specifically point down anything other than that. I just think that Cliff Curtis would slide right in there for his for his uh, fellow Kiwi actor uh, Sam Neill in this case. Yeah, I do like Cliff Curtis a lot. Like he was actually in Once We Were Warriors, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that, he was. Um, yep. The default, the the default film from New Zealand yep. that they make you watch in all uh, film schools, and he was a pretty shitty guy in that. I'm telling you, yes, he, he was is. a really good actor in that movie, and I loved when Django Fett fucking broke that forty bottle and started stabbing him with it at the end. That was badass. Yeah, I like it. Cliff, Cliff yeah. Curtis. He's got it. He's got it. He's a solid actor. I think that this is a movie that calls for someone that's. Again, not going to call too much attention to themselves. Like if you if you were to put Brad Pitt in this movie, my goodness, it's a the movie wildly changes when you put someone like that in. Right, Cliff Curtis, I think would fit in really well. Um, similarly, for Linda Styles, you need someone who again is like you need someone who is a presence, but like is sort of you know she's the mentor, she's the guide for for John Trent, so she can't like totally overshadow him, but you still need like a, a, a solid professional actress who can handle who can handle the role the dual role of being like the person who knows more and then the person who loses it and i think i think i you know i'm gonna go with lucy Liu with this one okay someone who always plays especially more recently plays characters that are very in control but i'm thinking about her turn as like oh ren ishii when she fucking flies Mm -hmm. off the handle in like her little uh her little um uh gangster meeting uh in uh in kill bill and slices that dude's head off and gives like the really pissed off kind of angry speech. I know that there's like there's a lot of range there, and that's what you need. You need a you need a professional actress that has a solid amount of range, but has a good presence too. Yeah, I got you, dude. Lucy Lou's a good choice. Finally, for Sutter Kane, this is I think this is the most important part, and I am going with a horror film veteran. This this almost I got you know what I would almost I'm almost surprised that he wasn't in this one as Sutter Kane. But I'm going with the great Tony Todd of Candyman fame, Final Destination fame. He's got the physical presence. He's a big, tall black guy with those like deep, deep, just scary looking eyes and that fucking voice. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear some of Sutter Kane's lines coming with, come, you know, coming out of Tony Todd's mouth. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I do think that's a really, really great choice. Like, yes, I, Tony Todd's fantastic. Like you cannot go wrong with that guy. And the reason that I'm laughing is because I also happen to chose making Sutter Kane an African-American guy. It's crazy that we were both on, on the same, on the same wavelength (laughs) as that. Um, for my casting though, like I'm not going to lie, I'm going, I'm going youth all the way on this one. I'm, I'm trying to get the younger viewers in on this. And, um, so for the role of Sutter Kane, I, you're gonna have to help me out with this first name. It's um, it's the guy who played uh, Cal and Doctor Manhattan on HBO's Watchmen. His name like Yaha Abdul Mateen. Is that uh, it? I think it. Yes, I don't. Yeah, go, yeah. Go ahead. I yes, I think you're pretty close. Okay. It's somewhere in there. I looked it up on pronunciation.com. They have this website that teaches you how to like pronounce people's names and stuff. And um, like I, I'm, I'm sort of been there, but either way, I love that guy. Mm-hmm. That guy is the fucking man. 
the fucking man. He was great in um, Aquaman and he was really great in Watchmen. But why, why I am choosing him is because the way that he portrayed Dr. Manhattan and Watchmen, this kind of like blank God character where you know, when I say blank God, I mean, he is definitely smart and he was able to know the future, but it wasn't like he was the most animate of like mm-hmm. deities, you know, and that that's the way that Dr. Manhattan is. So, I mean, he was definitely true to character, but I just love this, like when he, when it was revealed anyway, that he was Dr. Manhattan and we got to see him all like in the blue and full blue and everything. I love that. And he did have this really cool kind of smooth way about him that I also really liked. And he's, he's going to be in the new Candyman, and he's got something else that I've seen him in, in which I really, really enjoyed him. Yeah. So I, um, I do like that guy a whole lot. Um, it's crazy that we both, um, put him, put Sutter Kane as African-American, I, but for some kind reason, of interesting, I yeah. just, I just see it. Yeah. I just, I, I see it I gotcha, like yeah. that. Uh, like, yeah. So, um, when it comes to Trent, love Adam driver. I cannot go wrong with Adam driver. <laughs> and as, as much as, Adam Driver is great. You can't really hate on Adam Driver, but I still, I still think that a lot of the times the roles he picks, he's playing to his strengths and he's great. in a lot of stuff that he's done, I mean, he's been nominated for Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's won, but I know he's been nominated, but I still feel that he's playing to all of his strengths. And we, when we get range and I'm putting that in quotes with Adam Driver, I think it's more or less like, it's range in the sense that he's playing maybe like a different variation of like the same character. Mm -hmm. And he's not, when I say not playing like different characters that just happen to be the same character, he might be depressed guy who gets a little bit more depressed, but he doesn't go from like depressed to the smartest guy around to this cunning insurance thing, you know, to going to crazy. You never see that kind of range of emotion with Adam driver. So I think that it's, um, if we're talking if this guy is going to be elevated to an elite actor platform, as it seems like he is on the trajectory to do so, I think he needs to step up and do a, a big, like a big acting performance that requires a lot of variation in character. So I don't think we've gotten that yet. And it's, it's going to happen at some point in time. And why not come over to Adam Chemelewski's psycho 1998 treatment of in the mouth of madness. I, <laughs> so. I, I like the choice and it really would be, this would be like a whole new, uh, you know, this would be a whole new like mountain for him to climb if he were to pull off this yeah. character. It's, it is not, yeah. it's not easy trying to be what Sam Neill is. Right. No, exactly. It's not easy at all. And I think he needs one of these kind of super challenging roles. We just haven't, we haven't gotten it yet. He's found his niche. He's found a way to be really, really great in this niche, but we need, if he wants to be the Downey Jr. to be, you know, the next like whatever kind of tall, sort of weird looking and a good, weirdly good looking guy, this is the kind of role that he needs to uh, take on. And for Styles, this is completely for one scene and one scene alone. I'm going with Aubrey Plaza. And the reason that I went with this is Aubrey Plaza has this really like kind of cool twisted smile that you see a lot mm-hmm. on the show Legion where she plays the villain. She's that like one of the human form of the antagonist mm-hmm. in the show Legion that was on FX. And Aubrey Plaza's face has got a fuck ton of character, man. And it's a very beautiful face with a fuck ton of character, no less. Believe me, Aubrey, till the day I die. But, um, <clears throat> So what I'm casting her for is the contortionist scene where it's like, you know, where Linda kind of smiles at him, the upside down smile and Mm -hmm. everything that 
crazy sinister Aubrey Plaza smile would look amazing on that contortioned body and stuff like that. It looks amazing on her non-contorsed body. So it's going to look really, really good on that contorsed body on screen. So those are, those are my three. Um, I'd go in with the, go and trying to grab the youth on this one. But um, I do think that those would work for sure. I, I I actually thought about Aubrey Plaza as well. And I I do think like, I totally 100% know exactly how that would like, I can picture right now. And I think you're dead on with how that would look. I I think she's one of those ones that would be distracting, though. She's distracting for me anything she's into. Like, <laughs> I just think yeah, she, I, like, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Have, have you seen the show? Have you seen the show uh, Easy on Netflix? I know what it is. I if she's in one of the episodes, I have not seen it. I think I've only seen two episodes. This is Chacago, right? It's, it's the yeah, it's all these Chicago like, comedy. It's series. all these Chicago Chicago centric stories. Um, Joe Swanberg definitely thinks he's a lot more clever than he actually is. Uh, that's that's like <laughs> the most polite thing I'll say about this. But like, she's in an episode. She's in an episode with oh, who the fuck else is in it? Um, it's not that they're okay. So she's in an episode. She's distracting in this episode because she's like the biggest name, and like it's a bunch of other people who are kind of not well known at all. And then also okay. like Joe Lotrulio's in it in this episode. Oh, God. So it's like two really, for different reasons, two very distracting actors in an episode. Yeah, that's a little much right there. Like, Joe Latruglio, like, I do love that guy, but it's, he's got to be used in a really certain way because the way that he is on camera, I even, he can, they both command so much attention, him and Aubrey Plaza when they're on screen, that it's sort of, unless they're used perfectly, it's going to be somewhat of a just of a distraction. Like that's just yeah. kind of like it almost feels like it comes with the territory for me anyway. For sure, so. but but so nonetheless, get, but nonetheless, very good choices. I I I hundred percent. I'm I'm on board with that too. Well, why thank you very much, sir. And to be the guy behind the camera, the dude who's going to put this whole vision of yours together. Who do you got? So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a dual answer here, but like one one is the real answer. The first one I'm going to talk about though, just for. Like, I, like in my version of this, I would want more, more of the creatures, you know, more of, mm-hmm. I want more of these Lovecraftian creatures, uh, all, all, you know, strewn about this, uh, strewn about Hobbs End. And if that's the case, I'm, I, I want Guillermo del Toro to go ahead and take the fucking lead on this. Um, who, I mean, like literally who else is creating anything that he creates? You know what I mean? Like there is, you want to, if, if there's such thing as a, as an auteur for like creatures, it's Guillermo del Toro. There is yeah. no one making making these sort of um, these monsters and aliens and demons and things that are like no one is doing what he does. No one can do what he does. Yeah, Garamel is the bomb. You cannot fucking hate on Garamel del Toro, especially when it comes to his work with things that are not human. Like yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen The Shape of Water. The mm-hmm. Shape of Water is a fucking beautiful movie, yeah, dude. <laughs> like it is absolutely beautiful, and only a man like Guillermo could take the creature from the shape of water and turn it into a fairy tale love story and get me to cry from probably about an hour to the end of the movie. It was just <laughs> an hour into it to the end of the movie. So yeah, but yeah, I like that. Definitely. But the, the real answer, the real answer is it's Ari Aster. Um, of okay. Midsummer of hereditary. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's the reason why, do you know what his favorite movie is? Is it in the mouth of madness? Yes. And he's based. Is it, are you serious? He has based all of his visual oh. styles and storytelling on this movie. No shit. I so did not know that. So let him direct it. So let him direct it. Fuck yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. I did not know that. Of all the things in the world, 
that makes me so happy to hear that. I'm not going to lie. Like, it's good to see this movie getting that kind of love from one of the modern horror um, icons of today. Yep. That's really, really, really fucking and, awesome. And I think I think his version of it, if it, if it even touched on, you know, 50% of what Midsummer was, it would be fucking great. It would be pretty scary. Yeah, I got you, dude. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, dude, that's a really, really, really good choice. And that is definitely, I wish I knew that because I went with one that is really, really off key, but I do think that this will work. And like, I'm going with Lars von Trier on this one. Very interesting. Yeah. So I have a special place in my, you know, movie fandom for Lars von Trier. I I do as well, actually. Yeah. There's something about his style everything that is very, very, very innovative. He seems to capture certain like madnesses or certain crazinesses in this really interesting and sort of minimal way to a certain degree, like melancholia being an end of the world movie. You never really know it. Unless you saw the last like 30 minutes or so of it, but it's just a really interesting way of presenting this end of the world story. I have not seen um, the house that Jack built. I have seen the penetration scene from antichrist and I've seen some of like just little kind of snippets of some of his other stuff. And there is just something about what I feel that this guy can convey with like number one, just like psychology and psychological elements on film that is absolutely top notch. And it would be a really maybe something to kind of get him back into the good graces of America by doing something like the house or like um, like in the mouth of madness instead of doing one of his like original concepts, which, like I said, I like them. There's a special place in my heart for him. But I will say that some Lars von Trier material is a little bit of a difficult watch and maybe giving him something that was already done and just saying, hey, you could take your you could take your crack at this. Maybe this might prevent prevent some of the Lars von Trier elements um, from entering into a remake of the, in the mouth of madness. Yeah, no, I, I got you. And, and actually like just thinking of thinking of like the movie Antichrist, that is, that is, I mean, obviously it's, it's, I don't know, famous, I guess for its penetration scene. Um, whatever. I mean, it, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's the same thing that, that he did with Nymphomaniac. It's just porn actors. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but like thinking about like the mood and the tone of Antichrist, that mood and tone would be something that that would be extraordinary to see in this type of horror movie. And like it, mm-hmm. it really is. It's a different Antichrist is a very different type of horror movie, but a horror movie nonetheless. And like if you could just transport that atmosphere over to over to a remake of In the Mouth of Madness, it would be fucking awesome. It would be really awesome. Yeah, dude, like there's something that that guy does right. And I want him to take what he does right and put it into something like this project. I think it would work really, really, really well, for sure. I I like that outside the box choice. That's really very interesting. Oh, dude, believe me, I'm in an outside the box uh, thinking kind of mood today. You know, maybe I'm thinking outside the bun, little Taco Bell later for dinner and everything. (laughs) There's a lot of a lot of thinking outside here. (laughs) So, okay, so we just have a couple more questions left. This section I do call The Great Divide. Um, I wanted to ask you really quickly, and you don't have to list off an entire top ten list, but if you were to create a top ten list of Carpenter movies, where would you put in The Mouth of Madness on this list? Would it make the top ten? And if so, where, where would it be? I, You know, I guess it would make the top ten. Just thinking about, like, the Pantheon films, that's five right off the bat, correct? Correct. Five, so... Yes, 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 yes. Yep. Then I would put probably, right, right after that, I'd probably put... Um, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Probably put the fog after that, and then 
and then probably in the Mouth of Madness right there. So like seven. Okay. Gotcha. Some, some, like, I'm, I'm like actually the back half. six. Okay, you'd go six. Okay, yeah, gotcha. That, that's where I'm at. I'm in the back half. I have it at six. I had this movie a little bit better than The Fog. I know that The Fog has got a ton of iconoclasm to back it up and everything like that. And The Fog's a great movie. I'm mm-hmm. not shitting on The Fog in any way, shape, or form. But like, I just liked it in the Mouth of Madness a little bit more. Like A lot of the some of the the surprise and some of the high that I'm on for sure. this movie right now is perpetuating a lot of this decision, but um, I, I did like it very, very much. I think it brings a lot to the table. It's not as good as the Pantheon films though, which is what I wanted to ask you next. And that is, let me get to the actual question here. So we've called in the mouth of madness, John Carpenter's sort of last hurrah before his lesser later works. Why do you think In the Mouth of Madness does not fall into the category of Carpenter's Pantheon films? I, I mean, we, we hit on one that, you know, that, I, that we both like were all in favor of here. And I think that it's, it was a little bit ahead of its time. Um, it just mm-hmm. feels like a little bit out of place for what it was. Like this, it feels like more modern horror concepts crammed into, crammed into a, a, a Carpenter movie that he, would, that he would have normally made in like the late 80s and obviously into the 90s. It just doesn't quite fit. Um, I think it also suffers from not going far enough with the concept. Um, like they really should have, like I said, like I'm, I'm still like not 100% sure if we're talking about someone controlling reality or if we, the audience are watching, watching, you know, watching a movie slash reading a book. Like that's what we're supposed to get to. And I think they should have pushed Mm -hmm. that concept one way or the other as far down the road as they could have. Um, Okay. And I and I think there's a little bit of, like this is for sure like a psychological horror, a mystery, um, I, I, and but also there's some like visceral horror, right? Like with the with the Mrs. Pickman character turning into the creature and hacking her husband apart, um, with you know the the people like visibly bleeding out of their eyes and stuff. It felt like you should have kind of gone one way or the other a little bit more. Like it should have been a little bit more visceral, a little bit more blood and guts. Or it should have been just like purely psychological, so I think I think this is not quite like a, a you know a round peg square hole kind of deal or you know what have you. Mm-hmm. It just it's it's not quite sort of I guess almost the same kind of complaint that I had about Christine. It's not quite enough of what it is for me to kind of push it to push it to somewhere else to push it to yeah. the pantheon or even like a maybe maybe. I guess I actually I guess this is kind of becoming a cult classic, but um, certainly it's not a pantheon film, and I think it needs to be more of of the things that he does best to be a pantheon film. No, dude, I could definitely see what you're talking about here. There's something this could have been given a little bit more. You know what I'm saying? And there's an overabundance of things that we've discussed that this whole thing could have gone a little bit farther on and stuff like that, whether it be, you know, steering the direction of the audience as to what you're actually watching. Maybe it is something involving like uh, effects or something like that, the presentation of it or whatever. There's even stuff with the story in general. They could have pushed this a a little bit farther. I definitely agree with you on that. The one thing that I'm going to say here, um, this might be the controversial statement of the entire episode, which thank God I saved it for last, is that I think at some point in time, this movie is going to be due for a major, major renaissance. And while we may not consider it a Pantheon film now, I have a feeling that in time, this is going to be considered a Pantheon work. And the reason that I say that is because, and I, I, I hate to go the direction I'm going with this, it's rather dark, but 
um, whenever John Carpenter does pass away and he mm-hmm. is, he is getting older now and we do wish him the best of his golden years, but whenever he does pass away, I had the certain feeling that the world and or the, the internet or whatever you want to call it, the zeitgeist is kind of going back to like what we were talking about, how, why we didn't really do any reviews of the Pantheon episodes. I think everybody's had so much to say. There's no new experiences that people can have with those movies. And I will guarantee you that the week after John Carpenter passes away, um, Halloween, the thing and they live are the number one, two and three downloaded and rented movies on iTunes. Sure. Yep. But I have a feeling that that what's going to happen is people are going to start to look for other things that this, that John Carpenter did that they can kind of hold up in the same regard as they do Halloween and the thing and stuff like that. They're just going to be looking for new material, new articles for the internet to write, to break down the 15 things you didn't know about this or whatever it is. And at some point in time, this movie is going to get the recognition that I, that I feel it deserves. Cause like this movie, like it, it didn't really do so hot at the box office. It only profited, I think like $900,000, only $900,000 in 1990s dollars. But uh, um, there's something about this work, not necessarily being a forgotten work, but it's definitely a lesser known one. And when people do get the hankering to go back into some of his older horror movies, I have a feeling that they're going to flock to this one. And this one we're going to be seeing, the In the Mouth of Madness score reprinted on vinyl by Death Waltz Records and you know, for, for, you know, for years to come. It's just a matter of time until people find this movie and appreciate it. And the fact that it was ahead of its time, I think audiences have caught up to or have not even exceeded what they were going through with this. So at some point in time, these planes are just going to kind of collide. And when we're doing the, you know, retrospect, the occasionalist retrospective at some point in time, years and years down the road, we're going to be like, dude, you know, in the mouth of madness is one of his pantheon films. I just had, I just had this feeling that that's going to happen. You you might you might end up being right, and I that's exactly what I was thinking. I'm like, if it, you know, in the next, hopefully it's not for many many years that that Carpenter dies or Sam Neill dies, or you know you know like it. it I think it would have to be one of those two. Um, mm-hmm. That there's going to be a reinvestigation of of you know like the same way that. The same way that whenever a musician dies or whenever a guy's skateboarding and drinking cranberry juice while listening to Fleetwood Mac, like we have to go back and listen to it. Um, it, it is that we do have that same kind of effect with it's probably a little it's not the same as music just because like it's, you know, it's so easy to like find stuff on Spotify, yeah. YouTube, what, you know, Pandora, whatever. But when a name like like when Steven whenever Steven Spielberg dies. There's going to be a huge re-examination of everything that he's done, especially his later movies. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, it's the same thing. You're right. The same thing's going to happen with Carpenter, um, whenever he dies. And again, hopefully, it's not for another you know ten to fifteen years. Hopefully, he's like ninety when he dies. Um, but when that does happen, obviously, the Pantheon films are going to be talked about again about how those are so influential in in the history of American cinema, um, world cinema, really, but obviously, it's very specifically American cinema. Um, and then it's going to be like, well, do you remember this one with Kurt Russell? Do you remember? Do you remember uh, Big Trouble in Little China? How they've been? How that movie got kicked around for so many years? They're going to do a sequel and they're going to do a remake, blah blah blah. All the stuff that that one's influenced. And then I think, I think the next thing that they're going to get to, because you're going to talk about the thing, it's going to be the Apocalypse trilogy. So they're going to talk mm-hmm. about the thing. They're going to talk about Prince of Darkness, and they're going to talk about this movie as one collective unit, um, because that's how obviously right. how he saw it. Um, so I, I think you're right. Like, I do think you're right that like once, once like you kind of, 
once you kind of could do like the full, com- you have time to do the full compare and contrast of the Apocalypse trilogy, like both Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness are going to stand out quite a bit more in, in the years going forward. Yeah, I just had this certain feeling about it. I hope I hope I'm right, just so I can say that I made a awesome future prediction. But that's just it. Just seems to make sense to me, man. Like it, you know, that's just the way that this whole kind of progression, this posthumous progression of people's appreciating other people's work, just kind of kind of happens to be. So like, the, when Prince passed away um, in 2016, out of nowhere, when Prince passed away in 2016, immediately you had I, I probably myself went right to Purple Rain. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that like the first thing I listened to was that guitar solo from the Rock Hall induction. But you had people go to Purple Rain. And now, like, other Prince albums are starting to get reissued on vinyl. Sign of the Times just did um, a couple months ago. So, like, that's that's happening. It's just, like, this natural progression. And I guarantee you that in, like, two or three years, people are just going to all of a sudden have this crazy appreciation for a random Prince record that, like, you and I have never heard of. And it's like, this could be his greatest, most underappreciated work. So. No, you're, no you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's... We're we're getting that right now. There's Pepsi is releasing a commercial with a previously unheard, uh, notorious B.I.G. song. So like, don't be shocked if uh, if, if Biggie has has a little renaissance uh, in the in the coming days. Yeah, dude, I welcome it, man. Believe me, I've been listening to uh, Life After Death pretty regularly uh, the last couple of years. So I'm all for a mm-hmm. nice little shot of Biggie again. All right. So uh, do you have? Any final thoughts before we wrap up with this and then kind of transition into our little mini-sode? Uh, nothing. Uh, no, I, I don't. I just, this movie was a lot of fun. Um, like, I really loved, I really loved going, this is this is such a Times Capsule movie, because I could, I could almost specifically remember watching this on Showtime. Um, <laughs> but such a Time Capsule movie, a lot of fun to see, to see young Sam Neill kind of at the height of his powers, you know, post- uh, post Jurassic Park and like you know really his really his introduction to American audiences, um, so like seeing seeing Samuel at the height of his powers, um, seeing Jurgen Prochnow in something other than other than Beer Fest, which I literally I was not joking the other day on Facebook. I literally watch Beer Fest once a month. Uh, oh, <laughs> I'm not really entirely sure why, but it's just like uh, great background noise, and I can dip in and out. It's like a perfect is a perfect background noise movie. Um, oh, of course. So, like, all just all of that and, like, just sort of reinvestigating, you know, reinvestigating this movie from, like, uh, from a, mod, you know, from my standpoint as an adult versus, like, when I was a teenager. It's just really interesting to see, like, how many things still work, things that don't work, and, like, like what I cling on to now, like, thinking about it, just, like, how... <sighs> how with with really just like with really simple storytelling and like really straightforward storytelling john carpenter managed to cap managed to capture a really unique atmosphere in this movie it's really brilliant yeah dude this one like my final thoughts so just gonna make this really really quick is that i was so goddamn surprised again we're this book ending this conversation by surprise this was amazing like i i was so pleased in so many great ways I loved this. I seriously, like, I'm very happy we decided to do this instead of kind of going with like they live and like whatever we were talking about originally. And I even think that it's a really cool coincidence that we reviewed John Carpenter's making of a Stephen King movie to then cap off the John Carpenter month with a movie that is basically John Carpenter and Stephen, you know, John Carpenter, you know, telling a story about somebody named like Stephen King. Which it, 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 yeah, it was. Um, it, it, it's it's just a it's just a little nod, like a friendly wave to Stephen King that he's named Sutter Kane. He's a horror writer and he lives in New England. 
Yeah. For a second there, I actually thought that Stephen King pissed off John Carpenter the way like him and Stanley Cooper didn't get along. <laughs> right. And I'm like, are they, is this like something, is he making fun of them? And no, they're I looked buddies. online and they're, they're, they're friends and everything. Yeah. It's all good and stuff like that. So yeah, I thought that that was really cool. Fucking just a really great kind of way to sort of bring this entire experience full circle. And I know we're going to be recording our mini episode here. So, um, dude, if you want to lead it on out and we could uh, get going to that. So, everybody, yes, yeah, stay tuned for our wrap-up mini so that we're going to be having yep. for sure. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Chema, thanks for doing this. This is a really fun. This is a really fun um, uh, iteration of Spooky Season to to sort to focus on John Carpenter, one of our one of our still living. By the way, just don't don't we're not wishing for his death to make this movie popular. Just in case that wasn't clear, but really fun to do a, an in depth profile on one of our living uh, horror icons. Um, just a really great time doing this. I'm glad that you were along for the ride. And so for Adam Chemelewski, I am Matt Pagel. Uh, saying, uh, saying, you know, thanks for, thanks for downloading us, streaming us. Uh, thanks for following along with this, uh, with this whole fun ride during the spooky season. And we will see you next time.